2: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 249 of the program. Today is Friday, July 10th, and before we get started, I want to thank the people who make this show possible, all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members who signed up just this last week to support us or increase their monthly pledge, and that includes Agnar de Figueredo, like that name, Bill Whitson, Chad Halsey, Jacob Torrey, Kieran Lewis, Rodney Nelson, Theodore Pulver, and Yolanda Curis. So thank you so much to all of these comrades. If you'd like to support the show as well and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com slash support, patreon.com humanistreport humanist or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So we have another fantastic show for you all this week. We'll talk about Trump and how he's officially given up on trying to fight COVID-19. And some of his staffers reportedly hope that Americans will just grow numb to all of the deaths caused by the pandemic. And he's also pressuring governors to adopt his strategy of pretending it's not a thing by forcing schools to reopen in full by fall. Also, his supporters are taking their anti-mask hysteria to a new extreme level. And while we're talking about Republican insanity, we'll examine a right-wing commentator's claim that large, multi-billion dollar corporations want a communist revolution. Yes, you heard that correctly. And we'll look at Madison Cawthorn, a Republican up-and-comer who the party hopes will draw in young voters. Also, the Dakota Access Pipeline has been killed by a federal judge, at least for now, and we talk about that and celebrate. And Nancy Pelosi is refusing to debate her primary opponent, Shahid Batar. I'll tell you what you can do to force her hand there. And finally, we closed the week by talking to comedian Lance from the Serfs about a variety of issues that you will not want to miss. That's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully you will enjoy it. Let's get right to it. So contrary to what Donald Trump wants you to think, COVID-19 cases in the United States are continuing to rise. In fact, on July 3rd, we broke our own record with more than 57,000 new cases in one day now contrast that with other countries who have been struggling to get this under control like italy and on that same day they only saw 223 new cases spain only saw 444 new cases so it's not like it's eliminated in these other countries but i mean clearly they've been much more effective at getting it under control and we are very obviously doing worse than the rest of the world Now, if you ask Donald Trump why that is, it's not necessarily because he bungled it, because he could do no wrong. He's perfect. He's a genius, right? But in his view, the only reason why we're seeing an explosion of cases is because we're doing more testing. In his view, more testing equals more cases. He tweeted out, Cases, cases, cases. If we didn't test so much and so successfully, we would have very few cases. If you test 40 million people, you are going to have many cases. Now, this logic is completely idiotic because you can just stop diagnosing people with cancer, for example, and claimed that you've cured cancer. But in actuality, that's not how this works. The cases would still be there. We just wouldn't know about it. And raw positive case numbers isn't the only metric that we use to determine how quickly the virus is spread. Or how prevalent it is in any given area. So. He's just trying to come up with some sort of justification to explain why it's so bad because as a leader, it makes him look really incompetent because he is incompetent. But as CNBC's Wolf Fur explains, to dispel claims that testing is to blame for the country's growing outbreak, epidemiologists point to a figure known as the positivity rate, which indicates the percent of tests that come back positive in a given region. The data point is important because it indicates how broadly the virus is spreading throughout the community. The World Health Organization has previously said that the positivity rate for a country should remain stable at about 5% for 14 days before a country eases restrictions. Some epidemiologists have noted that the fact that the national positivity rate has yet to drop despite increased testing of the population could indicate that the virus is spreading. That states are finding more cases relative to the amount of tests they're conducting provides the strongest rebuttal to the administration's assertion that case numbers are rising because we're getting better at finding cases through Increased testing, Jennifer Nuzzo, lead epidemiologist of Johns Hopkins University's COVID-19 Testing Insights Initiative, wrote in an op-ed for the Washington Post. They tell us the opposite, that each of these states needs to do even more testing to find these infections, followed by more rigorous contact tracing and isolation. So, obviously, an increase in testing does not explain why we are seeing an explosion of new cases because we're not just looking at one metric, right? It's more complex than that, in spite of what Trump wants you to believe. But again, this isn't necessarily about him trying to learn more and educate people. This is damage control. That's what this is. And look, if this weren't an election year, he wouldn't even be pretending to care about COVID 19. I mean, we're in an election year. And he could barely pretend publicly that he gives a damn at all. But I mean, this is exactly why he's tanking currently. If you look at real clear politics polling averages, Joe Biden is ahead of him by eight. 0.7 points and joe biden is winning currently at this point in time not because joe biden is an exciting figure or he's coming up with new policies that are exciting young people and making them want to come out and vote no it's because he's saying common sense things that we can all see about donald trump and how he's bungled his response to covid 19 something that we could basically have under control had we acted sooner and actually Taking it seriously, but we're still not really taking it seriously. So when you see the way that Joe Biden is attacking him, and not necessarily a political way, but just a common sense way, I mean, it's not really that surprising why Joe Biden is ahead. Take a look at what he's been saying about Donald Trump.
1: As other leaders in other countries took the necessary steps to get the virus under control, Donald Trump failed us.
3: In a blistering speech in Wilmington, Delaware, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee blamed Trump, saying the country is hardly better off than it was in March.
1: How are we in this many months into this and still, still don't have what we need? You know, the steps you've taken so far haven't gotten the job done, Mr. President. Fix the shortage of PPE for our health care workers before you tee off another round of galls
3: in contrast to trump downplaying the need for testing
1: we didn't test we wouldn't have cases the
3: right. former vice president called for need. an increase and contact tracing and on masks
1: we absolutely need a clear message from the very top of our federal government that everyone needs to wear a mask in public it's if i have an undiagnosed i have it It's to protect you against me it's to protect other people
2: yeah i mean everything that Joe Biden is saying about Donald Trump here is accurate. The extent to which Donald Trump has bungled COVID-19 cannot be overstated. He had this election, I think, on lock, right? He was cruising towards re-election, and had he acted to get this under control in a serious way, I mean, we could move on. We could move past this and it would basically not hurt him politically. But because he's been such a colossal failure of a leader here, well, this paved the way to uh, Joe Biden taking the lead. And rightfully so. And Joe Biden is putting out attack ads against Donald Trump. And, you know, even though not all of his ads are good, some of them are terrible, things like this are going to land because people want a leader who is going to actually make an attempt at getting us past this pandemic.
1: You are going to be so proud of your country. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. Mr. President, it's too much. And I'll say, no, it isn't. We have to keep winning. We have to win more. We're going to win more.
2: Now, that is an ad that shouldn't just embarrass Donald Trump. It should embarrass all Americans. Because when you compare how poorly we're doing with regard to COVID 19 to other developed countries i mean our response has been abysmal i think kyle Kalinski basically put it best when he said our response to this was akin to the way a failed state would handle a pandemic it just it, it's been non-existent um not only are you not trying to get it under control but the response economically to people who are suffering has been laughable. You gave Americans a one-time payment of $1,200. So, I mean, there's so much to critique when it comes to Donald Trump and the way that he's mishandled COVID-19 up until this point, but the election is months away. So, if he even was acting as a self-interested individual with any brain cells that still function he'd at least try now to get it under control before the election but basically all he's doing is hoping that it goes away that's been his response and if you think that i'm uh, being facetious here no he literally is basically just crossing his fingers and hoping that this goes away president trump repeated his claim that the pandemic will soon disappear
1: i think that at some point uh, that's going to sort of just disappear i hope
0: you still believe so
1: disappear. Well, I do. It. I do. Yeah, sure. At some point. And I think we're gonna have a vaccine very soon too.
2: So basically, his strategy to combat COVID-19 is thoughts and prayers. That's functionally what this looks like, because he's not proposing any real solutions. He's just not. And if you think that I am interpreting what he said there by hoping that it goes away as, you know, a bad faith political actor. I mean, sure, we all hope that it goes away, but you have to take action. He is not going to take action, at least at this point in time. In fact, what he's banking on is the hope that people are just going to become numb to all the deaths caused by COVID-19. That is literally what they're banking on. Because as Eric Lutz of Vanity Fair reports, Trump's administration is reportedly scrambling to assemble coherent messaging around the president's behavior. According to the Washington Post, Trump's advisors are seeking ways to reframe his response to the coronavirus, even as the president himself largely seeks to avoid the topic because he views it as a political loser. They're sending health officials to swing states, putting doctors on TV in regional markets where the virus is surging, and crafting topics points to convince Americans that, as one senior official told the outlet, they can live with the virus being a threat. Staffers are also reportedly hoping that the country grows numb to the escalating death toll, a state of mind the president seems to have already achieved. So I need you to understand, we are living through a deadly pandemic, one that's so serious that it only occurs once every 100 years, and he's just given up. He's just decided Uh, I'm done with this as the leader, as the president of the United States, where he's in a position to actually have an influence over this. And because he views this as a political loser, he's just not going to do anything about it. I mean, that's insane. He's just giving up on the pandemic and he's hoping that we'll all go numb and not consider the fact that on his watch, 130,000 Americans died because of this. I mean, it's just it's astonishing that this is actually happening in america and there's not universal outrage the fact that he still has supporters in spite of this it speaks to how bad American political discourse has become, right? But here's the thing. In spite of what he hopes will happen, in spite of the fact that he's banking on people just, you know, not caring about COVID-19 after a while, you can't do that because a virus doesn't care about whether or not there's an election coming up. A virus doesn't care about your political strategy because it already has showed up at Donald Trump's doorstep. When you have Secret Service agents testing positive for COVID-19, when you have former Republican presidential candidates get treated for COVID-19 after attending. Trump's rally in Tulsa, where six staffers, mind you, tested positive for COVID 19, and when you have Donald Trump's own son's girlfriend. Kimberly Guilfoyle testing positive for COVID-19, which reportedly, you know, they viewed as a setback for the campaign who's trying to downplay it. You don't have a choice. You can't pretend like it's not a thing. Not wanting to touch this issue because you view it as a political loser isn't an option. And here's the thing. If you truly believe that Americans are dissatisfied with your response to this, you have months to change it, right? You have months to make an impact, to say, I did all of these things. We took these measures And we uh, helped make this virus, you know, um, obsolete, basically, or at least got it under control. But he's not trying. He's literally just giving up because it's an election year and he already fucked up. So he's just going to pretend like it's not a thing. That's the new strategy. I mean, this is uh, this is unbelievable. This is unreal. It's not like he, you know, doesn't want to at least do the bare minimum to stop Americans from suffering. He's not even Putting up this facade that he cares anymore. He's not even pretending. But Donald Trump does care about you if you are an American statue, and he's pledging to make it so anyone who vandalizes or takes down a statue gets a 10-year prison sentence. 10 years. So if you are a human being in the United States with COVID-19, or maybe you don't have it, but you were affected economically and you lost your job and thus your health insurance as a result, Trump is just going to pretend as if that issue isn't really an issue. But if you're a statue in America, then Donald Trump is going to take swift action to make sure that you're protected. I mean, imagine if he cared about American human beings as much as he cared about statues. I mean, I shouldn't even have to say that because you have an interest as someone seeking re-election to at least pretend to care about us, but he's not even doing the bare minimum he's just checked out. And it's unbelievable that we accept this, right? Americans should be taking to the streets right now and demanding his resignation. That's what we should be doing. That's how poorly he's handled this. That's how badly he's fucked up. The fact that we are just allowing the sitting president to pretend as if COVID-19 is no longer a thing. That is honestly embarrassing. The fact that he has any allies in Washington, the fact that he has any supporters voting for him, that is embarrassing. So, I mean, I don't know what else to say. He is not going to get this under control before the election, and he's just given up trying because he doesn't believe he is able to. So, he's just said, fuck it, um, I'm moving on to the next issues. Statues, uh, burning the flag... It's honestly just, I don't have the words to explain this. Like, we're going to look back at this moment in history and we're going to be embarrassed that this guy actually did this and we allowed it to happen without everyone universally demanding that he step down immediately because 130,000 Americans have died. I mean, we invaded two countries because of 9-11, which killed 3,000 Americans. And now 130,000 Americans have died due to a deadly pandemic And the response has just been meh and we're all okay with that i mean it's unbelievable so this is why he is going to end up losing it's because of this so lately on the program we've been talking a lot about the necessity of masks because i have become very concerned about the fact that this for whatever reason has become a political issue because Of course it has. To where if you wear a mask or don't wear a mask, you're making a political statement. If you wear a mask, you're a libtard who's being duped by the deep state. Or if you don't wear a mask, you're a MAGA-Chud. And I'm not
1: doing it because I woke up in a free country.
2: They're nuts. So we're going to talk about this anti-mask hysteria because I do find it fascinating uh, given that we see a new viral video of a Karen rebelling against a mask requirement pop up every day. But this really is something that should concern all of us because we are fighting a very contagious and deadly pandemic but the first example that i want to show you of anti-mask hysteria comes from a costco karen i think we're on costco karen number eight by now where she responds in a very american way to uh being asked to put on a mask to shop at costco all right you don't have to, your mask for me to do
3: that i will we come back there another time okay? Okay. up outside here, I'll have them come meet you no, outside, right here. You, need to, you, need, you need to do that, that's a policy, oh, I'm sorry, can I help you guys, I oh, I'm okay. you, um, we're going to walk outside, no, I'm going to have them come out and, in, in, you come out and see you, come on, come on, come on, come
2: That is a grown-ass woman sitting on the floor of a Costco throwing a temper tantrum like a toddler because she was asked to put on a mask. Now, I wish I could say that that's like the worst example of rebellion against masks that we've seen, but this next video of a Karen in a Target is even worse because she literally is so anti-mask that... Just the fact that Target had a display of masks that they were selling, well, that's a big enough political statement that she found it personally offensive to her. So she decided to uh, take it down and destroy it, quite literally.
1: I'm not playing any <laughs>
2: I am willing to admit that there's probably a sizable portion of the American population who isn't explicitly political in their aversion to masks, right? They're probably apolitical and they just don't want to wear masks because they think it's uncomfortable and they don't have one and they're too lazy to get one. I don't know. But most of the anti-mask vitriol is, in fact, coming from the MAGA-Chud crowd. And I'm not just generalizing and saying, oh, well, that lady was acting that way because she was a Trump supporter. She literally admitted that she's a Trump supporter, and not just any MAGA-Chud, but a level 100 MAGA-Chud who is deep into QAnon conspiracy theories.
3: Dude, everything that Donald Trump was elected to do, you can read about it on Twitter, you can read about it in the news. All of the all of the deep state politicians, all that stuff has happened. It's done. Okay. So I was hired to be the, the QAnon so spokesperson. Well,
4: listen, I'm mean, you spin around. Just put your phone down. What? First, okay. Need you to put your phone down. Oh, my God.
2: So that's what we're dealing with. These are the people who are driving the anti mask hysteria in America. And I'm not going to try to, you know, decode her stupidity that we saw there because it's it's useless. Basically, they are subscribing to this Vague, almost abstract idea that if they wear a mask then they are agreeing to give up their liberty my body my choice apparently because if the government requires that you do something well then that by definition is against freedom so they're not allowed to require us to wear seat belts they're not allowed to uh tell us to wear clothing in public so if you want to hang dong in walmart that's just freedom oh, Yeah, it's stupidity. This is a pandemic. Just put on a mask. Nobody likes wearing a mask. It's uncomfortable. It's hot. And if you have glasses, then they fog up your glasses. But it's a pandemic. If you want to be in public, if you want to reopen the economy, then they're essential. Otherwise, we can go back to self-quarantine again. I mean, you can't have it both ways. The people who are saying open up the economy are the same people who are saying, I don't want to wear masks. Well, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. It's a virus. It doesn't care about your political predispositions. It's a virus that is absolutely ravaging our country. We lost 130,000 Americans because we've just pretended like it's not a thing. So you can't just not wear a mask. And it's not just that people individually are rebelling against masks. Now the anti-mask discourse is evolving or devolving, I should say, to where it's now much more nefarious. It's not just, you know, like you're part of counterculture and you're edgy to wa- not want to wear a mask. Now, MAGA-chuds are shaming people who choose to wear a mask. Now, someone who I thought they loved, Judge Jeanine Pirro on Fox News, America's Karen, actually got a lot of backlash because she posted a photograph of herself wearing a mask in public. Now, even though not all of the responses to this were bad, There were so many dumb fucks who chose to shame her for wearing a mask that this level of political discourse, this level of vitriol is honestly just, it's, it's shocking even for Fox News' audience. So one person responded to her picture saying, Take it off, judge. Don't be a sheep. You're better than that. Another person said, why? You look ridiculous. You're outside for fuck's sake. Another person said, I'm usually with you, but on this, no. You're being duped. The mask is political. Has nothing to do with health. This one got a thousand likes, by the way. Uh, Another person said, come on, judge. Get over the scam already. I would be more impressed with no mask. Hashtag fake. Hashtag plandemic. This person says, take it off, please. You are inhaling your own CO2 at 8,000 ppm within a few minutes. That is toxic. It creates an acidic environment in your body within which errant cell reproduction thrives equals viruses, cancer, fungal, and bacterial infection. Pneumothorax is also possible. Now, this person sounds like an expert based on all of the words he was using. Very big words here. Bigly. Um, I I hope that he gets this information to surgeons who have to wear masks every single day. But maybe I'm just not privy to the number of surgeons dropping dead because of masks. Another person says, um, another example of Fox News assimilating into the MSM. What a disgrace. Yeah, as if they weren't already mainstream media. No masks. Sad you've fallen for this BS. Don't. Just don't. I cannot believe you are wearing their muzzle. I guess you are all talk on your show. I am so disappointed in you. And finally, this makes me sad, Janine. Fox is dead. When I see this, I'm like pre-morning the death of humanity. Because if we can't do something as simple as wear a mask during a pandemic, how are we going to be able to respond intelligently to bigger crises like climate change? What if there was like an asteroid that was coming to Earth and we had like a year to uh, take action? I feel like I'm reciting the plot of Deep Impact or something. But I mean, what if that were the case? Would there be anti- uh asteroid deniers. I mean, we, we just we can't make it with this level of delusion. And there's a lot more examples of that that Travis Geddes of Raw story cataloged. But I mean at this point, the issue is truly devolving. And it's so serious to them. Like they take this so seriously that one MAGA chud in Pennsylvania that Status Quo's Jordan Sheridan interviewed literally equated wearing masks, the mandate to wear masks, with the Holocaust. I wish I were kidding, but this is something that happened.
4: I think it's unconstitutional to even mandate anybody wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. That'd be like me asking you to put a yellow star on if you were Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's not right. right. So I think, Do you think wanna, do you think he, wear a mask? I mean, that's my constitutional right. right. Even if it endangers other people? I mean, if you're afraid of getting it, wear a mask. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of getting it.
3: No, but I'm saying, even if, like, if you were around other people, you're not wearing it, it might be your constitutional right, but even if you could jeopardize
4: others, if you have it without knowing it. It'd be like putting a fence up and saying, well, we're trying to stop mosquitoes with a chain-link fence. Mm. I mean, it it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's preventing anything. i would be like me asking you to put a yellow star on if you were
2: Jewish. Oh, my God. We're all gonna die. We're all gonna die. Look... He literally said mandating that people wear masks is like telling you to put on a yellow star if you're Jewish. I don't have the energy. I don't have the patience for this. All I know is it needs to stop. This is not acceptable. We are in a pandemic. I mean, for fuck's sake, people. Now, because most of this type of rhetoric is coming from MAGA chuds, the only thing that can actually stop them from believing this is if the chief chud himself actually comes out and says masks are okay. Not only that, I denounce people who are against masks. He has to set an example and wear masks in public. Now, previously, he refused to be filmed or photographed wearing a mask, although he did reluctantly wear one when he toured a Ford plant. But he's still not doing enough. I mean, you can actually take... Policy action here. You can sign an executive order that requires people uh, in federal buildings to wear masks. They're doing this now in federal courts, I believe. But you have to actually do something, even if it's small, but you have to make a statement, a policy statement, where you encourage people to wear masks and you unequivocally reject the people who are speaking out against masks because you're president, right? So the buck stops with you. These are people who basically worship you. You have to do better. Send a message to your conspiratorial supporters Make them wear masks, but he's not doing that. And as CNN reports, as coronavirus cases surge and governors begin agitating for a national mandate on wearing masks, President Donald Trump is showing few signs he'll budge on an issue that has come to epitomize a national pandemic response rooted in denial and which now threatens his political future. Even most elected Republicans now openly advocate for wearing masks and have been pictured with their noses and mouths covered, in part to set an example for the country. But Trump still refuses refuses to wear a mask in public, and most guests at his two July 4th celebrations at Mount Rushmore and on the White House South Lawn were barefaced. So there's that, and when it comes to the rhetoric that he's using, he's not necessarily like explicitly anti-mask, but what he's saying is not enough.
1: I'm all for masks. I think masks are good. I would wear, if I were in a group of people and I was close. You would wear one. Oh, I would, I would, oh, I have. I mean, people have seen me wearing one. If I'm in a group of people where we're not, you know, 10 feet away and, but usually I'm not in that position and everyone's tested because I'm the president. They get tested before they see me. But if I were in a tight situation with people, I would absolutely. You think the
0: public will see that at some point?
1: I mean, I'd have no problem. Actually, I I had a mask on. I sort of liked the way I looked. Okay, I thought it was okay. It was a dark black mask and I thought it looked okay. It looked like the Lone Ranger.
2: That's a start. We're, um, you know, trending in the correct direction, but that's not going far enough. You're not saying enough. You need to be unequivocal. You need to be clear and decisive. You need to say, not only should everyone wear a mask, but people who do not wear a mask are putting all of us in danger. And if you care about me getting reelected, then we have to beat this virus before November. So let's all make sure that we wear a mask and we stop the spread of COVID-19 before we end up allowing Sleepy Joe Biden to win. Hell, if he chose to sell MAGA masks, that'd be fine, as long as you're encouraging people to wear it. Even if he came up with some other alternative conspiracy theory that wearing a mask protects people from chemtrails to kind of like reverse engineer conspiracy theory against them— I don't even care at this point. Like that's how serious the situation is. You know, the ends justify the means, so long as later on he says that chemtrails. That's not a real conspiracy. But I mean, like we we just have to we have to take action to make sure that these people are putting on masks because these people are not taking it seriously and as a result putting all of us at risk. So it's one thing to have a president that has bungled the response and is just basically pretending like it's not a thing, but it's another thing to have his supporters actually not just refuse to wear masks, but now go so far as to people who choose to do the logical thing in wearing a mask during a pandemic so it has to stop um, and it doesn't seem like it will soon hopefully it gets better but i mean the buck stops with trump he's the leader they worship him they would you know inhale his farts if he sold it in bottles so he's got to act he can stop this by controlling his conspiratorial loony chad supporters but will he do that sufficiently i don't know i mean he he's not anti-mask based on what he's saying now. But unless he's unequivocal about it, I don't think much is going to change, honestly. Alright, so I know that I'm late to the party and talking about this, but I couldn't pass up an opportunity to share news that's this good with you. For all intents and purposes, the Dakota Access Pipeline will be dead in 30 days. Pending review. This is honestly... Such good news that it's difficult for me to process this because this is something that activists and the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe have been fighting against literally for years. Um, And the fact that this is happening is honestly shocking to me. So let's get to the details here. JC Fortin and Lisa Friedman of the New York Times report the Dakota Access Pipeline, an oil route from North Dakota to Illinois that has inspired intense protests and legal battles, must shut down pending an environmental review and be emptied of oil by August 5th, a district court ruled on Monday. The decision, which could be subject to appeal, is a victory for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and other Native American and environmental groups who have fought the project for years and a significant defeat for President Trump, who has sought to keep the Dakota Access Pipeline alive. Today is a historic day for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and many people who have supported us in the fight against the pipeline, Mike Faith, the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe said in a statement. This pipeline should have never been built here, he added. We told them that from the beginning. The ruling by Judge James E. Boesberg of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia is the latest twist in a long-running legal battle. It essentially vacates a federal permit that had allowed the pipeline to operate while the United States Army Corps of Engineers, which had granted the permits for the pipeline, conducted an extensive environmental impact review. Energy Transfer, the Texas company that owns the pipeline, said in a statement on Monday that it would file a motion to stay the decision and, if that failed, appeal to a higher court. We will be immediately pursuing all available legal and administrative processes and are confident that once the law and full record are fully considered, Dakota actually pipeline will not be shut down and that oil will continue to flow," it said. In his opinion, Judge Boesberg wrote that the court was mindful of the disruption such a shutdown will cause, but that it had to consider the potential harm each day the pipeline operates. So, there's a lot to process here, but I will say that this news comes just after we learned that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which is being developed by Duke Energy and Dominion Energy, have also announced that they are canceling their project as well. So, I mean, it's really great news all around for the environment. But I will say, uh, I'll be honest here, not to rant on everyone's parade, I'm a little bit skeptical that this will stand, this will be appealed, and whether or not, you know, a court at a higher level will maintain the same stance, you know, it's let to, it's yet to be seen. Uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic. I will say this is an unexpected victory for us, but, you know, just kind of like pump the brakes on the celebration, even though it's hard not to celebrate any good news because it's very rare during these times. But I mean, this is something that is near and dear to my heart. We talked about the Dakota Access Pipeline so much that I actually have a playlist on this channel dedicated to talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline. And, you know, the story is truly, it really shows how badly affairs are in the United States, right? When we're talking about militarized police brutalizing protesters, this story has all of those components. Literal armed mercenaries were paid to intimidate and assault peaceful protesters. They had dogs sicked on them. Uh, They had cold water sprayed on them in freezing weather, all to defend this pipeline that shouldn't have been built there because it violates the territorial sovereignty of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe and also it poses a threat to their drinking water and drinking water of anyone in the surrounding areas. And at the same time that this was happening, they got no support from Obama who was a lame duck president at the time and he basically just said, you know what, I'm going to wait and not do anything. We'll just see how this plays out. And then he left and as soon as Trump took office, he signed an executive order almost immediately expediting the construction process of the pipeline. And not to mention there was never a proper environmental impact report conducted before they constructed the pipeline. Um and you know, there have already been leaks. <laughs> like what we see, there have been multiple leaks within months of it going up. So everything that the protesters said would happen has come to fruition. So, you know, to see it come to this place where ending it permanently is seriously on the table. I mean, this is um this is huge news. This is great for Standing Rock Sioux as well as environmental activists. Like this is a win for the planet. We'll just put it that way. Um and we have two sh- two pipelines being shut down in the same week. This is absolutely huge, so I'm really thankful that we got this decision, but I will say to everyone, just be cautiously optimistic because Energy Transfer Partners, um, you know, they have the support of the president. This is a company who has a lot of money and resources, and they're going to fight this tooth and nail. Um, they've had legal setbacks before, but they've kind of gone on in spite of that. So, I mean, look, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, but this is really, really good news Congrats to Standing Rock Sue and any protester and water protector who put their lives on the line to stop this from happening because it paid off now. So as most of you hopefully know by now, Shahid Buttar, Nancy Pelosi's primary opponent, has advanced to the general election in November. So California has a top two primary system to where Democrats and Republicans all basically compete in the same open primary and the top two candidates with the highest vote totals advance to the general election. Shahid Buttar is facing off against Nancy Pelosi and I will admit this is going to be a really tough race to beat, but is it impossible? No, I don't think it's impossible. But still, even though she has one of the most serious primary challenges she's had in decades, she's not taking it seriously. And this isn't necessarily something that is uncommon. Usually, if a Democrat incumbent is facing a primary challenger who's actually really strong... You know, they choose to not debate them or even acknowledge their existence unless their internal polls show that they're kind of in trouble. You know, it's why Joe Crowley back in 2018 finally chose to acknowledge Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's existence and debate her because the numbers didn't look too good for him and it scared him. And Nancy Pelosi currently is in the phase of this campaign where she just pretends like he doesn't exist, but regardless if her internal poll numbers show her beating him or not it shouldn't matter like if you are facing a primary challenge you have to debate your primary opponent right aoc absolutely destroyed her primary opponent, but she still debated her. Because that's what you have to do in a democracy, right? You're not entitled to your seat in Congress. You have to allow your constituents to hear alternative voices. I don't care if it's someone who I support or not. I mean, Ro Khanna, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, if you have a primary opponent, you should be required to at least debate them three times. But that's not what we get. You have to basically twist their arms to get them to agree to a debate. And the fact that we even have to do this in a democracy is infuriating, but here we are. Now, Shahid Buttar is trying to get Nancy Pelosi to agree to a debate, and he tweeted out, San Francisco deserves real representation in Congress. At the very least, Nancy Pelosi should show up for a debate. It's been 30 years since her last one. And he also links to a Sprout petition that you can sign. It has over 2,000 signatures where you can kind of maybe put a little bit of pressure on Nancy Pelosi to debate. But again, I will say that it's preposterous that we have to do this to incumbents, right? There needs to be some type of requirement or law to where if you're facing a primary opponent that reaches a certain threshold, if they're a serious challenge to you, then you have to debate them, especially in these top two primary states. You know, there's no excuse in Washington state, in California, If you have a top two primary system and one of two candidates will win in a general election, they should be required to debate. It doesn't matter if it's two Democrats or a Democrat versus a Republican, a debate should be mandatory. It shouldn't be based on whether or not an incumbent will agree to it because that's absurd. That's not democratic. Um, So I would encourage you to sign that petition. I think that petitions can be useful, but more importantly, you have to tweet to Nancy Pelosi, call her office, actually put real pressure on her because if she has an option to just ignore shahid butar then she will so the point is we have to do what we can to help shahid butar i mean like this is going to be a hard race but it's worthwhile because shahid is a phenomenal candidate like putting nancy pelosi aside shahid Bhutar alone is someone who we desperately need in congress because unlike a lot of the elites like nancy pelosi who you see in congress he's a normal person he's a normal person who has dealt with struggle right who has actually faced adversity in life and wasn't handed everything with a silver spoon. And to kind of show you that, he put out an ad in March, which really speaks to the world of difference that we see between him and Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is someone who has two... Uh, you know, $12,000 refrigerators stocked full of ice cream in our home, in our mansion, uh, one of many mansions, I'm assuming, whereas Shahid Buttar actually had to fight for every single thing that he has. Um, so take a look at this ad and we'll talk a little bit more about him when we come back.
5: If you've always had a roof over your head and you know it's going to be there, it's really, frankly, I think impossible to relate to people who've had to be exposed to the elements. Just the struggle not to be exposed to the rain, the cold, sleet, what have you, That in itself is an all-consuming endeavor. I thankfully haven't had to deal with that for large chunks of my life. When I was 17 to 19, I had a taste of it, and I know that that's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't wish that experience on anybody. I thought everything was fine until I was 16 and my parents informed me we were losing the home to foreclosure. It felt like my world crumbling. It was losing my friends because I wouldn't be around them anymore. It was losing the place that I knew It was putting all of my worldly belongings in boxes and frankly losing most of them. I still wonder occasionally about my high school yearbooks and whatever happened to them. It also was the beginning of what for me became having to leave college the first time.
3: Smile Shahid. I'm just taking pictures of your school.
5: I had all the student aid that I could get. Because my parents had lost their house and weren't able to really contribute anything, I couldn't make the expected contribution for the fall semester. The first message from the university was, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out.
4: Did I love you.
3: I want you desperately in school.
5: By the, the middle of the semester, it was, okay, this isn't gonna work. But by that point, I'd been in the dorms for half the semester, so I ended up on the hook to the University of Chicago for $10,000 on top of my student loans, as I was losing that place to live. I have friends that I'm very grateful for sheltering me from the most brutal aspects of being unhoused. You know, I only, uh, really a couple times was outside but mostly you know I had a roof over my head got a couple friends in the dorms who had let me in I stayed on people's couches this one particular night I couldn't get in I do remember there's snow on the ground you know I wasn't quite dressed for it I had a coat but it's not like I definitely wasn't like layered up to be out all night you know and you know, I spent that night basically on buses it gave me opportunities to understand uh, what desperation is like and what people go through. I see here in San Francisco people grapple with being unhoused and having inhabited very briefly that experience I know how quickly it could crack someone's psyche. I lost my hope as a young person on the south side of Chicago and frankly I, I think of it as a stroke of remarkable fortune that I was able to get back into a position where I could be not only secure with a roof over my head, but secure with job opportunities, learning opportunities. I think that in the past, there's been this presumption in the United States that if you're unhoused or if you're unsuccessful, somehow it's your fault. That's never been true. And it's particularly untrue as wealth gets siphoned up to the 0.1%. More and more Americans are in a position where even if they have a roof over their head, they're not sure if it's gonna stay there. They're not sure how to keep it. We have plenty of housing for everybody And the fact that we let apartments go empty so that they aren't available for people to live in, I think that that's just a foolish choice. In my mind, making sure that everybody has housing isn't just serving the people who are unhoused. It isn't just serving the people who are housing insecure. It serves our communities because it means that our communities and our country can benefit from all of the contributions that everyone has to offer. And the idea that we have made housing such a market-driven commodity instead of a human right is just a reflection of our mislaid priorities as a society it's one of the things i want to help correct
2: that is a powerful ad and shahed Butar is a phenomenal candidate now what i usually say is in these types of races i think that the insurgent lefty candidate is going to win so long as enough people hear about him or her but in this instance i think that name recognition is important But Nancy Pelosi almost has this cult of personality around her where you have these resistance liberals just so infatuated with her because they think that she's effective at, you know, fighting against Donald Trump's agenda when she's not at all. You know, clapping at Donald Trump sarcastically or tearing up his speech or whatever, that is not something that actually affects meaningful change. Actually allowing progressive policies to be voted on, uh, challenging him in a meaningful way. It's more than, like, this type of political theater that amounts to nothing. And you have to try to break the hold and break this type of trance that centrists are in, this infatuation that they have with establishment Democrats. So even if people know about the option in Shahid Batar, I still think a lot of them would opt for Nancy Pelosi specifically because they kind of worship her and see her as the anti-lefty, anti-progressive who's just, you know holding the center because that's what she said she has to do so this race i think requires an extra effort to the left that's the point not to discourage you that's not why i'm bringing this up but it requires us to go beyond like the traditional primary race where we can't just you know phone bank and you know um Canvas for Shahid Batar, even though that's crucial, but we actually have to do a little bit more to change hearts and minds. Because anytime you're going after this type of political behemoth like Nancy Pelosi or Joe Crowley, it requires a lot. And having extended conversations with people in that district who will be casting a vote in November, that is absolutely crucial. So if you live in that district, you have to get out and do everything in your power to elect Shahid Bhutar. And those of us who don't live in that district, we could, just, we could still phone bank, but we have to donate to Shahid Buttar and support efforts like this where we sign petitions and spread the word about what he's trying to do because this is a really difficult race to, uh, to achieve. And if we're going to be successful, which is possible, we have to fight like we've never fought before, fight harder than we fought for Bernie Sanders. So, you know, that's all I'll say. She's got to debate him. And I think that the more pressure that we put on her the better off we'll be at ousting her, the better and more stronger a candidate Shehid Butar will be if he knows that we have his back. So I'll leave that there. This is an important race and we have to watch everything that is happening here and try to uh, bolster the message that Shehid is trying to get across i'm not sure how many of you are familiar with an individual named madison Cawthorn, but what he managed to accomplish recently it's genuinely impressive and even if i disagree with him politically you know i give him credit where it's due he beat a trump-endorsed establishment republican and he is poised to become the youngest member of congress he's gonna be the first zoomer i believe elected to Congress, which really is interesting, although it is a little bit depressing that it's not a lefty who is the first Zoomer, but nonetheless, you know, what he did, you know, you've got to give him credit where it's due. I was not, you know, able to run for Congress when I was 24 years old. I was still working at a Blockbuster, believe it or not, trying to study for the GRE to get into grad school. Um, so, you know, I just, I, w- I wasn't there, right? Maybe there's a little bit of class privilege, but nonetheless, you can't take away what he managed to accomplish. And his story actually is really unique in that he was in a car crash that left him paralyzed from the waist down. So, he is in a wheelchair. Hopefully, that gives him some additional insight into, you know, the needs of people with disabilities, and he doesn't seem like an overt fascist. However, I want to just kind of temper everyone's expectations because I think that a lot of the media is already fawning over him because they think that maybe this is the first type of Republican that we'll see in the post-Trump era if we're able to oust Trump in November. And, you know, people are thinking, oh, well, maybe there's a possibility that Republicans can still be normal and not complete far-right goons like Donald Trump or Louie Gomert. But that's not necessarily the case because as you learn more about Madison Cawthorn, it becomes obvious that there's not really much difference here. It's the same exact antiquated ways of thinking. And, you know, it's just all of the same that we've come to expect with the Republican Party, albeit in a Zoomer package. And part of the reason why I think I'm I'm a little bit salty is because the media is fawning over him when they never do this for left-wing candidates. Like, how much have we heard? about Jamal Bowman or Mondaire Jones or Qasem Rashid, Uh, but when it comes to a Republican, since the media wants to try to pretend as if they're neutral and be overly fair to Republicans to correct what a lot of people view as a liberal bias, you know, they're trying to you know present him to americans as you know a new type of republican when that's not really what this is but we'll get to that i just want to show you the reaction that he got from the view which is supposed to be a liberal show which includes conservatives you know and we'll contrast the way that they responded to him with the way that they responded to aoc being sworn in in 2019 what do you think you did that made people recognize that you were the better choice i'm Just enamored by uh, young people that get involved in the political process. So kudos to you for running at at this age. I I think that's incredible.
5: At just 25 years old, the youngest person in Congress is the infamous Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And you two couldn't be more different.
2: So they seem genuinely excited to talk about him. But here's how they talked about AOC. And you just got in there. And I know you got lots of good ideas. But I would encourage you. To sit still for a minute and learn a job <laughs> and- So do you understand why the media is a problem here? They haven't even brought on Jamal Bowman or Mondaire Jones or Qasem Rashid, and, you know, they need to be lifting up all types of voices. You hear no lefties in the media, but the minute there's a Republican who is young, who is uh, able to string together a coherent sentence, who doesn't seem too much like an extremist like Donald Trump, well, the media just falls over themselves to prop up this individual. So, you know, that's... That's a different story for a different day, but I want to talk about this individual because as I mentioned, he was in a car accident that left him paralyzed. So, you know, something about him that you would hope is that he has more empathy and it seems as if he actually is more empathetic, you know, in contrast with other Republicans who are ruthless, who just tell everyone, basically, you're on your own. You know, the government's not going to help you with anything. So if you lose your job, if you have medical bills, um, you know, rugged individualism for you. We only offer socialism to the rich. So here's what he had to say about what that accident, you know, did to him in terms of his outlook on life and how to treat people
4: it changed my whole perspective uh, quite a bit. You know, it, it taught me a level of grit and perseverance that would have taken probably decades to learn otherwise. But also it taught me something that I think is lacking a lot on the Republican side uh, in politics, and that's empathy. It's being able to to feel like I can recognize when people feel disenfranchised or when they don't feel like the, the, the system represents them. And so I know what that's like, and I, I can empathize with that
2: look i think that that's really admirable i don't necessarily know what that means in particular but having empathy is a good thing does that mean that you know he supports trans rights i don't know uh but when it comes to something that's relatable to him uh which is healthcare, because when he got in his accident he had a medical bill of three million dollars so you know i would assume that based on that experience you would want to make sure that nobody else in the country would have to deal with that. Except when it comes to health care, he doesn't actually take that position. The, the accident left you with three million dollars in medical debt, which is why you plan to make healthcare reform one of your signature issues. And I think that's extremely admirable. Uh, you are against free health care for all. So I want to understand what is your plan, especially since we are seeing tw- 20 million people quit uh, uh, will be out of work due to COVID-19. So I'm assuming your health care plan has nothing to do with employer-related insurance.
4: Uh, no, Sonny, it does not. You know, I uh, thank you very much for your question. But the thing that I think is so imperative to realize is that if I was in a country that practiced socialized medicine, I genuinely believe I would be dead today. Uh, you know, I, at that point, whenever you're using a a single payer a free base market of health uh, healthcare that gives healthcare to all you obviously have to start rationing care and i only had about a 1% chance to live it was an absolute miracle that i was able to pull through you know i think my doctors i think my god but you know i i i know that without having a great healthcare system i would not be here today and so my answer though is that you know for too long the republicans have been the party of no when it comes to healthcare reform whereas I really believe that we should be leading the pathway to, to lower prices so more Americans can have access to it. And I think the way to do that is to re, de, re decrease regulation, because you know here in North Carolina, Blue Cross Blue Shield has a, a virtual monopoly on the entire state, and that cre- creates artificially high prices. But I think if we could bring in some more insurance company and bring more competition and price transparency to the entire, to the entire industry, we could see prices go significantly far lower. I mean, you know, there's six people trying to sell a pizza to my house right now that will deliver to my house, and they're all trying to get a pizza to me, you know, for as cheap as it can be, as fast as they can, and with the best taste. And, you know, I think it's an extremely simplified analogy, but I think it's very imperative to realize that free market capitalism works and always lowers prices.
5: I love that. Totally agree.
2: Shut up, Megan McCain. Unblock me on Twitter, you goddamn coward. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, If free market capitalism were the answer to all of our healthcare woes, we have the most free market healthcare system in the developed world, so wouldn't it suffice as it is? Wouldn't it not need to be reformed any further? And some of the things that he says here are genuinely stupid, and I'm really trying here to not be a dick and shit on him too much, but let's look at what he says. If I was in a country that practiced socialized medicine, I genuinely believe I'd be dead today. What? This is your moderate, normal Republican America? He thinks he'd be dead if he were in a socialized. Medicine country? First of all, when we're talking specifically about single payer healthcare, which is what he cited, we're not talking about socialized medicine, we're talking about socialized insurance. I wish we were having a more serious conversation about a national healthcare system like the UK has, but we're not even taking it that far. We're talking about socialized insurance. We send the bills that your private hospital gives you. To the government and they pay for it, Medicare specifically. Uh, but the reason why he believes he would be dead is because if everyone had healthcare, which would be such a horrible thing, then we'd have to ration care. So the assumption is that if everyone has healthcare, that would, uh, you know, lead to more wait times. So if he, you know, came into the emergency room with an accident, They basically just say, well, we can't help you right now. I'm so sorry. Uh, You may be in critical condition, but this person has a cold. So they were in line first. Like, that's not the way that things work. And if it were the way that a single payer system functions, don't you think we'd be seeing a lot of cases like this in countries with single payer like Canada, for example? I mean, they're just north of the border. We don't hear about that happening, right? What he also says is that the way we can improve our current system, because it does need improving, at least he admits that, is to decrease Regulation. So, in other words, impose less rules on these greedy for-profit private companies who have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value and not actually cure patients. I mean, Goldman Sachs asked literally whether or not it was a sustainable business model to cure patients, but according to him, the way that we improve the healthcare industry is to just unchain them, let their greed go unrestrained. How would that solve the problems of our health system? Don't you think that it needs more regulation? Don't you think that it's a good thing that we impose regulations and don't allow them to discriminate against patients with pre-existing conditions? How would deregulating an already rogue industry who buys politicians be the answer? And he also suggests that if there's more transparency required, which is a regulation, by the way, he says he wants to deregulate, but he also wants price transparency, which is a regulation, then if, you know, these types of health insurance companies are forced to disclose their prices, they're going to be so embarrassed that they're not going to want to charge you an arm and a leg, except... The thing with this is they're they're just going to rip you off and be more open about it. It's not going to actually deter them from charging you thousands of dollars because they care more about profit than anything. And, you know, if we have increased competition, I mean, in theory, that should be conducive to better prices for the consumer, right? But what's going to happen is they're going to work together to covertly price fix because that's exactly what we're seeing now. So, I mean, all of the solutions that he is proposing— on one hand, he says he's against regulation, but he proposes regulations, but on another hand, the regulations that he is proposing are the most milquetoast, mealy-mouthed solutions that won't actually fix anything. His thinking when it comes to, you know, at least the policy of healthcare is right in lockstep with the Republican Party establishment, but at the same time, he's definitely not positioning himself as an establishment politician who wants Democrats and Republicans to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, even if he implies that that's what he wants sometimes, because he very directly is... Is criticizing the establishment in general uh not just establishment democrats but establishment republicans as well and even if his you know uh criticism is relatively vague of the establishment he definitely doesn't want to be seen as someone who is establishment
4: whether you're talking about the democratic side or the republican side i believe we have a lot of cowardly establishment hacks who really just try to toe their party line. They don't want to shake anything up in any real way. And, you know, I almost look at them kind of like how, you know, a lot of people see big health care. You know, they, they don't necessarily want to fix the problems because then they're going to lose a lot of their clientele or, in, in this case, lose their talking points. So I want to go up to Washington, D.C. for some different reasons. Not to enrich myself, not to empower myself, but to actually be a voice for the people of the United States because I feel like we have, we don't have that representative in Washington, D.C. right now.
2: Now, believe it or not, he was answering the question, what would he get done when he's elected in Congress, if he's elected, assuming he will be successful there, which he probably will, um, and he offered zero policy prescriptions, and he almost made a good point. Like, he was this close when he was talking about healthcare. So, he says he looks at establishment politicians the way people see big healthcare; They don't necessarily want to fix the problem because they're going to lose a lot of their clientele, or, in the case of politicians... They don't want to fix the problems because they'll lose their talking points. Oh my god, you were so close. You were so close. You almost nailed it. Why don't these healthcare companies um want to fix the healthcare problems? Well, because they you don't want to lose their clientele. He's right. But why do they want to keep their clientele? What do the clientele do for these companies? They make them money, right? So politicians don't actually want to fix problems because they are making their donors money, okay? Politicians don't give a flying fuck about talking points. If they lose their talking points, they just craft new ones a week later. It all comes down to money. It's about capital, right? The reason why they don't want to fix the problems is because they're all corrupt. Not just Republicans, not just Democrats, all of them, most people in Congress are corrupt they do the bidding of their donors right there's a princeton university study that proves this that you know the interests the policy preferences uh with regard to policy outcomes are reflected of elites and special interests but average americans have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes so it's about capital it's about the money stupid and he was so close to making a really good point um so i mean he is close to actually hitting it on the head but at the same time He's not, right? Like he is someone who I think that people would like because again, he's a normal Republican seemingly and he's articulate, but he's not actually making any valid points and he's out of step with his generation. So it doesn't necessarily matter that he's going to be the first Zoomer elected to Congress if he's not bringing in any new ideas, right? We care about young people getting elected because they bring in a fresh perspective, but what he's bringing is more of the same. And uh, Crystal Ball asked him, you know, as a Zoomer, how is he actually going to represent Zoomers when they don't agree with any of the policies that he's proposing? This is what he had to say.
4: Polling suggests that my generation is overwhelmingly left leaning. Uh, but I believe that the problem with it has been is with the it, The fault lies with the Republican Party. For so long, they've just had a poor messaging stance. And we've chosen these social issue hills to die on, which I think has really created a uh, an alienation of who would be Republicans, whereas the majority of my generation is filing undecided or unaffiliated. They don't think that the Democratic Party necessarily represents them, and they definitely don't think the Republican Party represents them. And so, you know, I believe that if we come out with a a limited government approach, which is the true cause of conservatism, one that says, hey, I want the government to get out of your life, I want fiscal responsibility, I want strong border protection, and I want a strong military, I think a lot of our generation can get behind that. Let's get the government out of these social issues and social squabbles where they don't belong, and let's let state governments handle that individually. But as a federal, uh, from a federal perspective, let's just focus on keeping people safe and building the framework for people to be able to thrive in their, in their work and in their private lives.
2: Here's why he's wrong, and this is definitely not going to attract millennials or Zoomers because he's not addressing the root causes. So, in a late-stage capitalist society, what are the implications of someone saying that I want to get the big government out of our lives? It means that you are adopting this alternative mode of governance. You want to get big government out, but you're going to shift the burden of governance to the free market, which means rather than having, you know, the big government- lord over us. It's going to be large multinational corporations who control our lives. And you're basically opening the door to, you know, even more capitalism, which is the very system that has devastated millennials and zoomers. So if you don't actually right the economic wrongs created by capitalism, you're not going to pull them into your party. It's not going to attract them at all. What he's basically pitching here is libertarianism. This is not innovative. This is not a new ideology. And another thing he said about securing our borders, that is a xenophobic dog whistle. On top of that, he's actually hiding his social conservatism because he pitches to us, let's get the government out of these social issues and social squabbles where they don't belong, and let's let state governments handle that individually. There it is right there. There's the social conservatism that he was trying to hide because when you say, uh, let's get the federal government out of social issues and let the states deal with it, what that means is that if Alabama wants to discriminate against transgender people, well, we're not going to step in and get involved. If, you know, certain states want to uh, ban same-sex couples from getting married, well, that's up to the government. And this is the same thing that libertarians have been saying forever. Back in 2015, Rand Paul was talking about how we need to get the federal government out of marriage entirely. And that was supposedly like the woke position to take, when in actuality, it's not woke. You're just kind of sidestepping the issue entirely because you can't get the federal government out of a lot of these social issues. You can't. Like when it comes to marriage, the federal government offers couples hundreds of benefits, for example. So, I mean, it's, the federal government is inextricably linked here. So, by saying that, you're basically sitting on the fence and pretending to be woke when in actuality, you're just turning a blind eye to the bigotry that takes place in states, at the state level. And it is a way to mask your social conservatism. This is what libertarians do. This is why it's not persuasive and it won't actually appeal to Zoomers and millennials. So, at first, when you hear from Madison Cawthorn, he sounds like a traditional, standard-establishment Republican, but then he starts sounding essentially like a libertarian who's fiscally conservative but socially liberal, but then when you go to his website, that's not necessarily the case either because, you know, he is supposed to be a libertarian, but he says protect the unborn. Now, that's not necessarily bad at face value. It could mean that he wants the US government to stop bombing babies in the Middle East and North Africa, or it could mean that he simply supports healthcare for pregnant women and babies, but then just to the right of that, he opposes socialized medicine, and he is also very proudly pro-Trump. So he's kind of a libertarian, but not really a libertarian because he's anti-abortion, but he's kind of like, you know, a progressive woke Republican, although not really because he supports our explicitly racist president, Donald Trump. So, I mean, if he were to take the political compass test, this is what it would look like. And the reason why his political ideology is seemingly incoherent is because he wants to be everything at once and there's really no nuance here. And, you know, you can tell how confused he is because he rails against the establishment But yet, he puts AOC and Pelosi in the same category, and on his website, it states, Our faith, our freedoms, and our values are under assault from leftist coastal elites like Nancy Pelosi and AOC. I will work tirelessly for smaller, leaner government, and I will be a strong voice for faith, family, and freedom. Yeah, so if you're putting Nancy Pelosi and AOC in the same category... You're not anti-establishment. You know nothing about how the establishment has failed because Nancy Pelosi is very explicitly establishment and AOC is anti-establishment. So, I mean, what we're getting here is the same exact Republican mentality, but in a newer, younger package. And, uh, you know, don't take it from me. Don't let me convince you that he's more of the same. Uh, Take it from him because he very much explicitly supports old school conservative ideas.
4: I think what we need to do is really just follow the conservative doctrine of slashing regulation and getting rid of a lot of taxes.
2: So don't be fooled by him. Um, As the great Marianne Williamson once said at a debate, just because you have a new body doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have old ideas. And that's exactly what we're seeing from Madison Cawthorn. It is still shocking to me that we have a president who is just pretending like the pandemic is over. It's no longer an issue because to him, he doesn't feel as if he can redeem himself. He already bungled COVID-19, so why even try going forward? It's a political loser, so he's just not going to touch it. In fact, his staffers are reportedly literally hoping that Americans grow quote-unquote numb to COVID-19 deaths. That's where we're at. So he is living in this alternative reality because, you know, it's better for him politically. But it's not just that he's living in his own reality. He's forcing his delusions on all of us because he's forcing us as well to pretend as if the pandemic is over and to pretend as if it doesn't exist and it's not really a thing. And the way he's doing this is by forcing governors to resume schooling as usual, and not have any differences in the curriculum, pretend as if the pandemic isn't actually a thing. This is the hill he wants to die on. So, as The Hill's Brett Samuels and Jesse Hellman report, President Trump on Tuesday said the White House would put pressure on governors to get schools open in the fall amid rising coronavirus cases in the United States. At a White House summit, Trump signaled the full court press, saying it would not be good politically to keep schools closed. We don't want people to make political statements or do it for political reasons. They think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way, Trump said during a White House event with government officials and school administrators. We're very much going to put pressure on governors and everyone else to open the schools, Trump added, after again claiming that the increase in cases is a result of increased testing. So, he is using the same excuse. The reason why it only seems like we're doing worse than other developed countries is because we're doing more testing. Again, that is not persuasive nobody actually who's serious believes that. Now, sometimes Donald Trump will say something really stupid or ask a really stupid question and he'll be like the lone idiot in his administration and, you know, people around him, smarter people, will try to convince him to not do the completely idiotic thing. For example, he wanted to reopen the country by Easter. He asked why we're not nuking hurricanes to stop them. Um he asked why we can't just allow COVID-19 to wash over America. Apparently that is his thing now that he's doing. But I mean sometimes he will receive pushback from the people who are closest to him, but not this time because they have his back. The Education Secretary as well as the HHS Secretary are all on board with what he's trying to do. Because as Politico's Nicole Gardiano explains, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos on Tuesday lashed out at school districts that haven't promised to fully reopen their schools this fall, blasting education leaders who won't accept risk and give up and didn't try to launch summer instruction. During a call with Governor, she slammed the Fairfax District for its distance learning disaster in the spring and offering a choice of only zero or two days of in-person instruction moving forward, according to notes of a call with governors obtained by Politico. Earlier in the pandemic, DeVos had been more open to kids learning both online and during in-person classes. Education leaders need to examine real data and weigh risk. Risk is involved in everything we do. From learning to ride a bike to riding a rocket into space and everything in between, she said. HHS Secretary Alex Azar separately backed up DeVos, saying parents should expect schools to deliver a safe learning environment for their children, even during a pandemic. So, according to Betsy DeVos, learning to ride a bike, um, going to school during a highly contagious, deadly pandemic, these are both equally risky. I mean, this is absolutely um, absurd and notice that they're moving the goalpost. So back in summer, it was okay for you to construct the curriculum of mostly online courses and then you supplement that with some in-person days, um, but now they're not even allowing for any compromises in, sp- in spite of the necessity to minimize person-to-person contact as cases soar. Now they're just saying, no, you're not going to do that. It's going to be our way or the highway. You're going to pretend as if everything is fine and there's no pandemic and you're going to send your kids back to school whether you like it or not and donald trump is trying to enforce this at the university level by punishing universities that offer only online classes in the fall in fact if a university in an attempt to combat covid 19 offers online courses only then trump is going to restrict the visas of international students specifically f1 and m1 visas they will not be allowed to stay in the countries if the university that they attend only offers an online course So, um, in other words, this is a huge fuck you to anyone who came to the United States to get an education. And this is incredibly cruel. And I know a lot of people who will be affected by this because in my PhD program, most of the students were international students. And the way that it usually works is um, if you're going to take online courses, you need to take at least three credits, I believe. It depends probably on the university in order to uh, maintain that visa, Um, except they had a waiver for this back in spring, but now they're just withdrawing the visa. and They're saying, look, if you do all online to social distance then you can't study at this institution so what you need to do is either take that semester off or you can try to find you know a uh, a different university and actually do in-person courses and you know put yourself at risk but this is also something that fucks with grad students because if you are a phd student and you know you finished all of your coursework and you're just doing your dissertation research and you're teaching classes and you don't need to actually take any uh, credits then you basically have to take credits when you don't need to put yourself at an extra risk unnecessarily all to appease Donald Trump for his xenophobic reasons like he's trying to find an excuse to use ICE against immigrants even legal immigrants but I mean this is preposterous what is happening here is honestly just baffling to me and I don't think we're fully going to appreciate how absurd this is until it's like 10 or 20 years down the line and we look back at this moment the fact that we allow this to happen is astonishing They are not just pretending like COVID-19 isn't a thing, but they're forcing everyone else to go along with it. Pretend like it's not a thing. And if that puts you at risk, so be it. Now, putting aside the university level thing, like if you are a parent, you are faced with an impossible decision come fall. You can either send your kid to school and risk them contracting COVID-19 and bringing it home to you or maybe someone in your family who's immunocompromised or elderly and vulnerable um or you can try to homeschool them but the problem is that a lot of working class families don't even have that as an option right uh because School is basically a form of daycare because the cost of daycare is too high for people. So they usually just send their kids to school while both parents work and that's what they do. Like that's the school watches their children for them. But if you don't wanna get COVID-19, then that's not an option. I mean, this is really putting people in a horrible predicament and Trump on Twitter keeps talking about the need to reopen schools normally. But if you want that to happen, then you have to solve the problem. You can't pretend as if COVID-19 isn't a thing anymore. You have to actually stop the spread of it. And there are things that he can do measures he can take as president to do just that so this isn't an issue so we don't have to fight him on it right Uh, require people to wear masks sign an executive order that says you are not allowed to enter a federal building without a mask right Uh, convince your supporters to wear masks by wearing one yourself there are things you can do to make it so that way this isn't an issue but because he is incapable of doing the right thing and already views this as a political loser since he's checked out he's just saying fuck it You're going to pretend like this isn't a thing, the pandemic's over, um, or else. I mean, this is truly despicable, but it really speaks to the cruelty of this administration. He has no empathy for human beings. He doesn't care about what he's doing. He just wants to do whatever will help him politically. Whatever's politically expedient is exactly the course of action that he's going to take, even if he is hurting Americans in a concrete way. I will admit that I genuinely enjoy dunking on Republicans who are stupid enough to think that there's no difference between politicians like Nancy Pelosi and AOC and put them in the same category. Uh, or say that they're coastal elites and there's no differences between them. I mean, this is absurd. There's no nuance. And you look like a clown if you say something like this. But I mean, Republicans have always been hyperbolic, but they're now taking their hyperbole to a new level, a level that we really haven't seen since the Obama era when they were concerned trolling about maybe he's a secret Marxist, which is a joke because he's not a Marxist, At all, he couldn't be further from being a Marxist. But now, what one Republican, at least, is saying, Tom Fitton, a far-right political pundit, is that, uh, you know, these large corporations that the left rails against, they're actually not capitalist at all, and in fact, they are the allies of the left because they're helping us overthrow capitalism and institute a full-blown communist regime. Yes, you heard that correct. He's going to suggest here in this clip that I'm going to play for you that large multi-billion dollar companies are not capitalist; They're communist, and they're helping us overthrow capitalism. He believes this. Someone who gets paid to do political commentary said this on national television in an interview with Lou Dobbs on Fox Business. Now, this was a discussion that they were having about Donald Trump denouncing the uh, far-left fascists which isn't a thing, uh, but watch what you see here because this conversation was genuinely unhinged.
1: But I want to get, uh, if you will, a, a sense uh, from you as to the president taking on, for the first time, corporate America and its role in this, uh, this left-wing fascism uh, that is being uh, bred in this country. Uh, I, I, I have to give the president great credit because that took great courage. Well, that was one of the most important speeches, not only of his presidency, but of any recent American presidency in terms of highlighting the left's assault on our freedoms. And one of the big one of the dirty little secrets, the left would have you believe that corporate America is on on the side of the right or conservatives. That's far from the truth on cultural constitutional issues. Uh, the leftists control the corporations. They're pressuring social media to censor sh- uh, Trump, censor conservatives. They are subsidizing literally mm-hmm. the left that's trying to overthrow the country now through a communist revolution. Uh, it's it's a troubling time period. And, and we got to highlight that corporations are no friend of our values on these key issues.
2: But when it comes to buying politicians, uh, rigging the economy. Polluting the planet for profit, dismantling workers' rights, busting up unions, then these large corporations are definitely our allies. I mean, what a delusional take. Who believes this? Like, listening to him speak almost made my head explode. That's how stupid this individual is. And it's so frustrating to me that the people who shill for capitalism the most are the ones who typically understand it the least. If you wanna understand the motivations of these types of large multinational corporations, All you have to do is follow the money. The one thing that they want to do is maximize profit and that's it. They are not woke because they want communism or cultural Marxism, whatever delusional conspiracy theory you believe. Any action that they take is going to be Uh, to serve the interests of their shareholders, to maximize profits. And that's it. That's the one thing that you use to dictate their behavior, to try to predict what they're trying to do. The question is, will this make me money? If yes, then I will take that course of action. So, I mean, if you're a capitalist, then you should understand this the most. I, a socialist, shouldn't have to explain this to capitalists. But here we are. Now, Lou Dobbs, uh, also, we can't let him off the hook. He said that Donald Trump was so brave to uh, call out the role of corporate America in a left-wing fascism. Left-wing fascism is not a thing. Fascism is inherently right-wing, right? It's right-wing authoritarianism. It's totalitarianism that hinges on nationalism. So, I mean, for you to say left-wing, Uh, fascism, that's like saying the alt-left is a thing. It's delusional, it doesn't exist, and you're basically just saying, no, you, but to the left, right? When we say you're being increasingly fascist as a far-right party, your response is to say, well, what about the far-left fascist? It doesn't work because that's not the way that ideology works because it's convenient for you. Um, So, Tom Fitton, he says that the left is assaulting our freedom. So, we'll kind of take this, um, you know, sentence by sentence here. And my question to that, before we get to the communism thing, is how exactly are the left assaulting your freedom? freedoms when the president just a month ago threatened to violently crack down on protesters using the military. He did crack down on protesters who were peacefully protesting outside of the White House for a photo op. The president literally just said that we should jail anyone for an entire year if they so much as desecrate the flag. And we're the ones who are cracking down on freedom? We're the ones who are assaulting your freedom? Remind me again who actually has power in government? Is it the left? No, it's the far right. So for you to say something like this, not only is it hyperbolic, but it's stupid. He also says, quote, one of the dirty little secrets the left would have you believe that corporate America is on the side of the right and conservatives. That's far from the truth. Uh, Well, they're going to be on the side of whichever political party is going to help them maximize profits. And in our late-stage capitalist system, that's both parties. That's both parties. Uh, The difference between Democrats and Republicans is that Democrats try to hide the way that they shill for large multinational corporations, and they're at least woke when they do it. So rather than just saying we need to increase profits of these companies and do what we can to um, uh, encourage a free market economy, we want to make sure that those corporate boards are stacked with enough women and people of color. Like, that's really the difference. But both parties serve the interests of their donors. They tried to promote this neoliberal cult that we're seeing. So, I mean, for you to suggest that we're suggesting that you're, you're kind of constructing a straw man argument, and it's also, it's not true. Like, I don't think that the left would assert that corporate America is on the side of right wing conservatives exclusively. Like, nobody's saying that, especially socialists who you deem as the far left. Um, now, let's get to the gem here of all gems. This is basically the grand finale. He says, The left is control the corporations. Leftist control corporations, because the Waltons and Jeff Bezos, they're super, super left. Um, They're pressuring social media to censor Trump, censor conservatives. They're subsidizing literally the leftists trying to overthrow the country now through a communist revolution. I genuinely don't know what that means. Um, I try to, you know, pick up on the cues that these right-wingers use to try to fill in the blanks, but here I'm honestly, I'm blank how specifically are large multinational multi-billion dollar companies trying to subsidize the communist revolution that the left supposedly wants i'm waiting the only thing i could guess here is that you know maybe he thinks that nike supporting black lives matter and hiring colin kaepernick for a shoe campaign or whatever they were doing Like, that is their way of supporting the far left. And, you know, if you make a couple of jumps, then this means that they're also trying to support communism. But even that is, like, it's so difficult to fill in the blanks to get to that level of a logical leap, even for an idiot like this. Like, what are you saying here doesn't make sense, right? It's like me just saying, Donald Trump is um, a fascist communist, it makes no sense because Donald Trump isn't a communist. He's a fascist. But if I say fascist and communist, and I put those two words together to make some new meaning, I have to explain myself. But he doesn't explain himself because he doesn't really know what he's talking about. Like, this is an individual who is a political commentator who gets paid to do political commentary, probably a lot more than I make. And he thinks that large multi-billion dollar companies who are capitalist are trying to help the left overthrow capitalism, which benefits them, and institute a communist regime. I mean, I don't think I have to really uh, dissect this. It's just stupid. And usually, I try to avoid just saying, oh, well, what you said is dumb, because I think that it's intellectually lazy usually, and I can do better than that with regard to my own political commentary, but I genuinely don't know what to take away from this. He thinks that large corporations like Walmart want communism do you honestly think that walmart or amazon jeff Bezos, want communism do you think that elon musk wants communism in what world would billionaires and ceos want communism because they are supporting left-wing social causes like black lives matter or lgbtq rights maybe that's why he thinks that these companies want communism but they're supporting these social causes at a surface level specifically because they think that that is going to get them more money because if you virtue signal if you say hey we support you because here's a rainbow flag maybe you hope that gay customers will want to come in and, uh, you know, give you business. Maybe you think that you'll get some brownie points from people who support these social justice causes. But I mean, I'm reading more into this than I need to because this is just genuine stupidity. And that's all that this boils down to. Like he's just trying to use buzzwords like communists. But if you're going to use these words, you have to understand what they mean. You can't just throw around communism especially within the context of large multi-billion dollar companies because i can assure you they are the furthest from communism uh, nobody hates communism more than these companies they are capitalist and i promise you um they will never assist the left in instituting a communist takeover that's never going to happen tom fitton please seek help uh, you absolutely need it so, Representative Ilhan Omar recently gave what I think is a really powerful speech. And before I even tell you what this speech was about, who she was talking to, where she gave this speech, you already are probably assuming that there was a lot of backlash to whatever she said. And if you assume that, you would be correct. Because anytime Ilhan Omar says anything, whenever words come out of her mouth, right wingers are automatically outraged. It's almost like they're looking for reasons to be triggered. But with that being said, take a look at what she recently tweeted out a portion of her speech, and try to see if you can spot the controversy.
3: When America gets a cold, black Americans get pneumonia. Our communities are the ones that are bearing the burden of the coronavirus more than any other. People of color make up this proportionate share of low-wage essential workers who have had to keep working in food production plants Grocery stores and other workplaces, despite the risk to their lives, we've also faced higher rates of joblessness to the rate to um, to the coronavirus crisis, while also suffering racialized police brutality and militarization. The mortality rate for Black Minnesotans to COVID is twice as high as it is with other races. And for me, this is very personal. Because I lost my own father to the coronavirus. I see the pain and the havoc it's wrecking on black communities in Minneapolis. We must recognize that these systems of oppression are linked. As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit, Without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it.
2: I mean, that was a deeply passionate and powerful speech. She spoke about how COVID-19 which is affecting all of us but disproportionately affects people of color, just took her father's life. So she is speaking from personal experience about the necessity to dismantle institutional racism. I can't figure out why anyone would disagree with what she said unless they're explicitly racist, but nonetheless... Right-wingers took issue with what she said. Um, The first that I want to talk about is Tucker Carlson's response. Now, I don't have to play the segment for you. I think that if you just see this image, the still image from his show and look at the chyron, it tells you everything you need to know about his reaction. We have to fight to preserve our nation and heritage. So she says we have to dismantle institutional racism and the systems that oppress people of color. And in response, conservatives take that as... Oh, she wants to destroy America. And as a result, we have to fight to preserve our nation and heritage. I mean, at this point, Tucker Carlson might as well just yell white power and show up to record with the white hood because his white supremacy is so overt and explicit at this point that... You know, it's amazing to me that Fox News allows this to happen. And he's gonna, you know, complain every time there's backlash when he says explicitly racist things and, you know, denounce cancel culture. But this is someone who should not be on the air who is explicitly white supremacist. Like, this is dangerous. People who are watching Fox News are getting basically what the KKK wants you to hear in things like this. But Tucker Carlson isn't alone because other Republican Party lawmakers were extremely offended by, you know, Ilhan Omar's perfectly reasonable speech. As John Nichols of The Nation explains, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pushed the hyperbole button and tweeted, the Democratic Party has given up on America. All they want to do is tear it down. Trump Jr. demanded to know whether presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden agreed with Omar's argument and warned if Joe Biden wins in november these are the people who will be the thought leaders in the democratic party these will be the policies that the democrats push wake up america fox news host tucker carlson played omar's statement about dismantling systems of oppression labeled her a vandal and grumbled that she hates us senator Marsha blackburn took things even further ilhan omar took an oath to defend and protect the constitution not shredded roared the tennessee republican omar and her marxist comrades are a threat to our democracy Omar should resign. So let's just pause for a moment and back up. In response to her sharing her personal experience about how institutional racism affected her and led to her father dying, their response is to scream bloody murder, call on her to resign, accuse her of wanting to destroy America. There are no words to really capture how disgusting This party is. This is a white supremacist party. And this party should not exist. Cancel the Republican Party. They need to not exist. We already have a different right-wing party who could take their place. The Democrats. This is just, this is unacceptable. And as uh, John Nichols put it, They're telling on themselves here with their outrage to her calling for the dismantling of institutional racism. They're telling on themselves. They're saying they don't want to dismantle institutional racism. They like that there's a racial hierarchy in America and they want to keep it that way. Anyone who doesn't want to keep it that way, they want to destroy America because America is supposed to be white. That's basically what they're saying. Um, it's morally reprehensible, but these are the people who claim to have the moral high ground, right? They're religious. If you're Mar- Marshall Blackburn and Tucker Carlson claims to care about America, I mean, this is just disgusting. Now, rather than going on about the response, Ilhan Omar, she defended herself, rightfully so. I think that the left needs to learn from people like Ilhan Omar who don't run away from their original statements, especially if they're correct. And John Nichols explains. Omar then turned the discussion toward those who refuse to embrace systematic change in a time when that is precisely what is needed. She suggested that instead of asking why Democrats will not compromise in order to achieve piecemeal progress, reporters might ask members of the Senate's Republican majority as well as cautious Democrats, how come you are not negotiating with them? How come you are not listening to the voices that have been marginalized for decades and centuries in this country? How come you are not listening to the cries of the mothers and the fathers in our communities? How come you are not listening to the people who are telling you that we don't feel like our lives matter equally in this country. Because when you have legislators who are living every single day in the midst of communities that are constantly feeling pain, being told by legislators who have no idea, not a single idea, not because they've lived through it or because they represent people living through it, constantly telling them what should be and what can be acceptable treatment for themselves and for the communities that they represent. And I just think that is really the most... emblematic part of this conversation and it's truly why we continue to have a system that isn't equal for us. Yeah, beautifully put. Um, It's honestly deeply depressing and soul-crushing that that speech, which is completely just not controversial at all, it should be common sense, was um, the point of outrage for a lot of Senate Republicans. And they weren't just like behind the scenes griping about Ilhan Omar's speech. They're very openly saying this call to dismantle institutional racism, that just means you want to destroy America. I mean, they have no shame. It's it's disturbing, quite frankly. So, I don't know what else to say. Um, I feel really bad for people like Ilhan Omar, who, in spite of all of the vitriol directed at her— still continues to fight not just for her community but everyone else um i mean she is doing more and deals with more than anyone else in congress and truly i don't envy her position but i deeply respect her for everything that she's doing i mean her speech is common sense and it's sad that saying we should get rid of institutional racism is that controversial in 2020 but you have to understand that we haven't made as much progress as we wanted to believe that we've made right we made strides sure when it comes to social and racial justice but um race, racism has the tendency to adapt to new political settings it transforms it evolves right so you know these people in congress like marsha blackburn and kevin mccarthy we have to end their careers they have to be kicked out of congress because it's not acceptable to have backlash to feel outraged at the call to end institutional racism that is the definition of white supremacy So unless you're living under a rock, then I'm sure by now you've heard that Kanye West will indeed be running for president, and he made his announcement on July 4th. So um, there's a lot to say about that, but I'm not going to get into that in this video because I think that that deserves its own separate segment. But what I do want to talk about with regard to the Kanye story is the response to Kanye West's announcement, namely from actress Debra Messing. And in fact, I'm not entirely sure that she's an actress. She might be. She might be a singer or both, maybe. Either way, it doesn't matter. Her response was, um, it was problematic to say the least. So in response to Kanye West's announcement, she tweeted out, he's playing Jill Stein. He's trying to take young black voters from Joe Biden. It's disgusting. Yeah, that's going to be a big yikes from me. What's disgusting is this tweet. Because what is the implication of this tweet? It's insulting, It's demeaning and, quite frankly, it's racist because the implication is that young black voters are so stupid that the minute a black rapper announces that he's going to run for president, those votes that were otherwise owed to Joe Biden are just going to go directly to Kanye West. But Kanye West has black fans and white fans. So why is it that she's not necessarily worried about the white fans voting for Kanye West? Well, it's because she thinks that black voters are too stupid to think for themselves, at least that's the subtext here. So what she's saying is unacceptable, right? It's racist. Why would you also assume that just because he's a rapper, young black voters would be inclined to support him, even if they don't know what his policy positions are? But I mean, anything that I've heard from Kanye West with regard to political rhetoric, I mean, he would probably appeal more to older white evangelicals. So I hate what she's saying here because it really over- oversimplifies politics and And it's just intellectually lazy. It'd be as if Pete Buttigieg announced that he's running for president under some third party run, and she'd be mad because all of the LGBTQ plus voters will all of a sudden gravitate towards uh, Pete Buttigieg. When, you know, for me, as someone from the LGBTQ community, I would find that deeply insulting because we're more complex than that. We actually value substance. And obviously, the same is true for young black voters. So for her to say this, I mean, it's just a bad take. And obviously, she was called out for it. So Nina Turner responded saying, You just can't stop dipping, can you, Deborah Messing? Your connotation is racist. One, black voters are not owned by anyone. Our vote should be earned every election cycle. Two, we can think for ourselves and don't need your help. Three, sometimes it's best to stay out of family business. Teslin Figaro tweeted, Deborah Messing assumes black voters will vote for Kanye West because he is black. Shakes my head. The level of disrespect is high with this one. To which Killer Mike responded, saying to that, she thinks we are trained dogs, sis. And Nina Turner shared a quote from an author, um, which really speaks to a bigger issue here. There's this double standard because when it comes to white swing voters, you see at least the last two Democratic Party nominees craft their entire platform around appealing to those people, but they make no effort to reach out to black voters, right? Or the left in general. But when we're talking about black voters, you know, they don't have to meet black voters and earn their votes. Black voters have to follow through and be there for for the politicians, which is never acceptable. So this is the quote from the author Candy J, shared by Nina Turner, which reads, While white swing voters are largely treated like political free agents who must be persuaded to vote for candidates they like, Ibram Kendi discerns on The Atlantic that people of color and young people are treated like political cattle who must be whipped into shape to turn out for candidates they often don't like. Candidates and campaigns routinely change their profile to better attract the white swing voter. But people of color and young people usually find that the change has come at their expense. As Candy astutely sees it, young black voters are encouraged to vote, while white swing voters are encouraged to vote for candidates. Now, Nina Turner responded to this quote, saying, This right here hits the nail on the head. We must reject the notion that black voters or voters of color owe folks a vote. Our votes must be earned. Are we free agents or not? Inquiring minds want to know. And that's exactly right. Now, Deborah Messing is the exact kind of liberal who probably has read robin d'angelo's white fragility and if she has indeed read that book like i'm assuming she has most liberals have um then what is one of the core points of that book i mean the title is white fragility it's getting white people to not instinctively overreact and be insulted when somebody points out their racism and rather than trying to you know uh be defensive and say no i'm not being racist what you should do is listen to voices from people of color and try to learn and grow from their experience and let them educate you. Uh, But what does Deborah Messing do in response? She doubled down and she made matters exponentially worse for herself because she responded to all of the backlash saying... Oh, please, Nina, Kanye is an avowed Trump supporter. Trump's numbers have plummeted. Trump doubles down on his racist platform at Mount Rushmore, and 100 days before election, Kanye is going to announce now? I thought you were smarter than that, Nina. Clearly, it is an attempt to help Trump. Biden swept the African-American vote in the South. Kanye has millions of young African-American fans. It's not racist to say that Kanye can take Biden-leaning voters from him. It's numbers, statistics. If you want to use this to grab your spotlight by all means, if you really care about the African American community having their vote counted, I'll have Stacy Abrams call you when I speak with her this week. So hold on, let's just reverse for a moment. Deborah Messing just said I'm going to have Stacy Abrams scold you and educate you on this issue. Are you serious? Are you serious? Oh my god, the audacity. Of Deborah Messing, someone with an estimated net worth of $25 million, trying to rich-splain and white-splain the issue of black voters, to Nina Turner, one of the most influential black leaders in America. I mean, the goal on her. This is what money does to you, right? You surround yourself with yes-men, and they never tell you that some of your ideas are stupid. Uh, so you just think that everyone should listen to you, and when they don't, this is what we see. We see your entitled attitude come out full blast. So in response to that, Brianna Joy Gray tweeted, "Deborah Messing says she'll have Stacey Abrams call Nina Turner to explain the African-American community to her. And, as Dr. Victoria Dooley brilliantly put it, Deborah thinks Stacey Abrams is the manager of Black Voters <laughs> by Karen. That is actually a very Karen thing to do. Um, what she's saying here is honestly, it's baffling. the fact that she can't see why black people perceive her statement to be insulting, I mean, I don't know what to say. you're just dense. you are just dense if you can't see the issue um and to make matters worse, you threaten to bring in your black friend to, uh, uphold your shitty point, which is a bad point that you should just let go. Like, take the L, sit down. Uh, but, you know, I'm gonna let Nina Turner handle this because I don't have to respond. Nina Turner said everything that needs to be said about this, and I don't like to use this particular word because it's not 2016 anymore, but Nina Turner straight up destroyed (laughs) Deborah Messing. She wrote, Debra, Debra, Debra Messing. So, you go from bad to worse, the leader of the Karen Coalition strikes again. Although it is customary for the Karens to call the manager on black folk, how dare you attempt to create public conflict between two black women leaders in the public space? Not only is it disrespectful to Stacey Abrams and me, it is disrespectful to our black foremothers who sacrificed so we could have a voice in the first damn place. Your attempt to use Stacey as if black women have not been used enough over the last 400 years as the black manager friend card proves my original point, which is black people are not a monolith. You questioning my intellect is one of the oldest smears in the book. Black people have faced this stereotype since the inception of this country. It is racist to continue insisting that black people, seasoned or young, will vote for Kanye West solely because he is black. In case you didn't realize it, Kanye has white and black fans, yet you continue to insult black voters. Further, since you are into numbers and statistics, over 40% of young black voters prefer progressive policies over popularity. My original reply to you was not about Kanye and his intentions to run for president, but about you minimizing black people's power at the polls. Lastly, don't you ever fix your mouth to question my love for my people. I have been a black woman all my life. And finally, she ends with a gif of her saying, hello, somebody. Yeah, that deserves a slow clap. Nina Turner is a national treasure. And we don't deserve her and i will fight anybody who threatens nina turner i love her and as tim black put it deborah should create a new account because nina just killed this one hashtag flatline and you know that's exactly what happened she came up with a bad tag she doubled down she got demolished and that's the end of the story nope we're not done because she kept digging believe it or not let me repeat that she kept digging And she tripled down. (laughs) She tweeted out, Oh, Nina, Nina, Nina Turner, your historical bitterness that Bernie lost the primary by four million votes has skewed your reading comprehension. I said the Kanye stunt was trying to help Trump, whose numbers with African-American voters are abysmal. Fact, not racism. By using his fame to take young African-American votes away from Biden, whose numbers with African-American Southern voters were astronomical, another fact, sorry, I know they're inconvenient. I never said that black voters were a monolith. That's your name. Narrative. I said Kanye would pull votes because he has fans, period. Black and white, obviously, but in case you don't know, Trump does well with white people. So why would a rabid Trump fan like Kanye run for president against his buddy? Hmm, let's think. Sorry, Nina. I'm not going to stand by and let you write a narrative that doesn't exist. I am incensed that you would suggest that I am trying to divide two black women. You accused me of having no respect for black voters. It is laughable. I reference Stacey, who is an inspired leader whose governorship was stolen through voter suppression and is spirit heading an effort to ensure African-American people aren't disenfranchised. Would I be following slash supporting slash led by Stacey if I was this racist minimizer you slanderously paint me to be? The answer is obviously no. It's laughable. Let me just pause. She's literally using the I have a black friend card. (laughs) Wow. Nina, there are so much more important things going on that I'm going to now focus on. I am not interested in supporting this bit of drama you have constructed. Just a reminder, Trump is a white supremacist who is doing nothing as we reach 130,000 deaths by COVID, 40 million unemployed, and has done nothing to protect our soldiers from being assassinated for 100K by Putin, to name a few catastrophes coming out of this administration. I sure hope you have learned from 2016 and will put our country and the safety of her most marginalized first this time. So you're explaining all of this to Nina Turner as if she doesn't know the threat that Trump poses and notice how she's kind of walking back her original statement. Oh, I never said that just the black voters would fall for uh Kanye West and vote for him. Except what was that tweet again? She says, and I quote, he's playing Jill Stein. He's trying to take young black voters from Biden. We saw the tweet. You don't get to do revisionist history when we can literally go back a couple of days on your timeline. And see what you wrote. So, I mean, it's ridiculous, but Nina Turner again had a brilliant response. She stated Now I'm a bitter black woman who can't comprehend, Deborah Messing. You are well out of your depth, baby. You need to read this moment, but you can't even do that. Stop using other people to cover for your ineptness. Repeat after me I, Deborah Messing, am a racist and I need help. I use my white privilege and stereotypes as attributes for black women I don't agree with. For black women I like, I use the black friend card and demand that they go check another black woman. Moreover, I don't respect the agency of black people, which is why I am very comfortable ascribing my beliefs onto black people, especially if they do not act accordingly. I am that white liberal that Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, Malcolm X, and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King warned about, and the sad part is I don't even know it. My lack of awareness is linked to my white privilege and neoliberal cloak. is so good for the soul. Now, don't you feel better? You are like most neoliberals who believe the status quo is okay and that all the suffering in the world started in 2016. You lack the courage to deal with the fact that black people, poor people, working class people, and other marginalized groups were catching hell well before 2016. You prefer conformity and illusion over righteous critique and substance. You are dazzled by a type of politics that celebrates being better than Trump without understanding how critically dangerous and low that bar is. You are, as Frederick Douglass described, among those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation, are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. Know this you are messing with the wrong one because I am that one in 10,000. Now, because she got checked once again and quite frankly embarrassed by Nina Turner, she didn't directly respond to Nina Turner, but instead she passive aggressively retweeted people who were shitting on Nina Turner. For example, she retweeted um, this from a lady named Rita. And it says, you cannot reason with Nina Turner. She is toxic Bernie. As in 16, she'd rather see Trump win than anyone but Bernie win. She'll play the race card if you try to reason. Thank you, though, for trying. You speak for many. So understand that by retweeting that, she's kind of telling on herself. And, you know, since she lost this argument spectacularly, all she can do is say, well, you know what, Nina, you must like Donald Trump. No, the point that Nina was trying to make went straight over your head because you got too defensive to see what she is trying to tell you. You made an idiotic point. Just apologize and move on. Like, you didn't have to double down. You didn't have to make matters worse by threatening to bring your black friend to correct another black woman. Like, you didn't have to do this, but you took it there and you embarrassed yourself and rather than just like taking a seat and taking the L, you chose to continue this. So now you don't get to cry and play the victim. You're worth $25 million. You're going to be okay no matter who wins, right? Uh, But what you should do if you actually are the liberal that you say you are is actually try to listen to people with a different perspective than you and not shut them down, not explain to them what politics is because politics to you, a multimillionaire, is very different than the politics of someone like Nina Turner who actually has lived through struggle. So this was just embarrassing, but I really don't need to say much more because I think that Nina Turner uh, said everything that uh, needed to be said here. Uh, That is incredibly embarrassing for uh, Deborah Messing. And will she take the L in uh, future uh, bad tags? Probably not, but at least, you know, we can make fun of her, I guess. So there's that. Um, Yikes. I swear to God, I tried to avoid talking about the Kanye West presidential run story because I don't think that he's serious. I think this is a publicity stunt and I don't want to inadvertently feed into that, right? I think he's doing this to promote his new EP or album or whatever he's doing, uh, But I don't think he's serious. He hasn't given us any indication that he's serious about this. He hasn't filed any paperwork. And on top of that, he's missed the deadline in a number of states. You can't run in New York. You can't make it on the ballot in Illinois. And if you want to qualify to be on the ballot in California, then he has less than 30 days to get 200,000 signatures. And if you don't have a political campaign or apparatus of any kind, you're not going to make that happen. I don't care how famous you are. So I don't think he's serious. However... He's now veering into the realm of politics, and even if he doesn't run for president, he could still have a negative impact on the broader Political discourse based on what he's saying. So let's start from the beginning. On July 4th, he announced he'd be running for president, tweeting, We must now realize the promise of America by trusting God. No, thank you. Unifying our vision and building our future. I am running for president of the United States. Hashtag 2020 vision. Now, immediately after he put out this tweet, billionaire Elon Musk responded, saying, You have my full support. Because, of course, that's what Elon Musk would tweet out. Now, my question to Kanye is, Why would you run for president if you don't care about politics and you don't know anything about politics? Like, do you even know the difference between Democrats and Republicans? Like, do you know how many branches of government there are? And I'm not saying that to be condescending. I'm saying Kanye West, like, based on what we have learned from him in a new Forbes interview— he is deeply naive and his views range from social progressivism when it comes to issues like criminal justice, but outright theocratic totalitarianism when it comes to issues like prayer in school. And it's scary. So if you don't know about politics, why are you getting involved? So I mean, the reason why I'm talking about this in spite of my reluctance is because even if he doesn't run for president, it seems like he won't be able to run in 2020. If you are talking about things like this which we're about to see where you're spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories that are deeply dangerous at a time when there's this anti-science anti-mask fervor in america we have to call you out we have to So there's a couple of things that the article um, or the interview points out here. And the first thing that is clear is that he doesn't really have any allegiance to one political party. You know, he says that he would run as a Republican if Trump weren't in office. But, you know, since Trump is in office, he doesn't want to be a Republican. So he's choosing to run under the banner of the birthday party, literally, because if he's elected, then every day will be like a birthday for Americans. Okay. Now, additionally, he claims that he's no longer a supporter of Donald Trump, but he still very clearly has an affinity for Donald Trump, and he also has already preemptively selected Elon Musk as his running mate. Because why wouldn't he? Of course. And he wants to make Elon Musk the head of America's space program. I don't think he'd be interested in that because he's interested in profit. But nonetheless, the first thing that I want to get to is whether or not he can run at all, because he still thinks that he can run for president in 2020, because according to Forbes, he believes an argument could be made to get onto any ballots he's missed citing coronavirus issues. I'm speaking with experts. I'm going to speak with Jared Kushner, the White House with Biden Says West. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Why would Donald Trump and Joe Biden help you get on the ballot if you're running against them? That makes no sense. Why would they help you? I mean, ask the Green Party or the Libertarian Party how welcoming Democrats and Republicans are to third-party candidates. Why would you think they're going to help you? Because you're Kanye West? I mean, the level of entitlement here and delusion, it's just, it's its stunning to me. It really is. Now, some other things here that he uh, points out. He never voted in his life, which, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, you could blame that as a failure on our institutions and politicians. Uh, But he also says that he had COVID-19 in February. This is kind of a side point. And he says that if he were to ever be in control of the White House, he would structure it the way that the government of Wakanda is structured. For those of you who don't know, Wakanda is a fictional government in a fictional movie about superheroes with superpowers. But that's what he'd model his White House after. Jesus Christ, this is going to be a long video so buckle up. So let's get to the policies because this is where things take a turn for the downright terrifying and totalitarian, quite frankly. When asked what his plan to deal with COVID-19 is, well, simply put, it's prayer. We pray. We pray for the freedom. It's all about God. We need to stop doing things that make God mad. Your response to a pandemic is prayer? Using that logic then, which is stupid logic, why would you run for president? Because can't you just use your influence now to pray away COVID-19? Why do you have to be president to encourage prayer? Aren't people already doing that? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Believe it or not, it gets worse because, on the subject of vaccines, he says it's so many of our children that are being vaccinated and paralyzed. So, when they say the way we're going to fix COVID is with a vaccine, I'm extremely cautious. That's the mark of the beast. They want to put chips inside of us. They want to do all kinds of things to make it where we can't cross the gates of heaven. I'm sorry when I say they, the humans that have the devil inside them. And the sad thing is that the saddest thing is that we all won't make it into heaven, that there'll be some of us that do not make it. Next question. Let's just pause for a moment and try to take all of that in. (laughs) So we're dealing with a pandemic. Maybe the one thing that will save us since we're not accepting social distancing or the economy to be shut down for a prolonged period of time since we're refusing to wear masks. I mean, the one thing that could save us a vaccine... He's saying, no, I don't like that because it's the mark of the beast. Yeah, no, no, not okay. Um, There's enough people in America who are anti-science, flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, and conspiratorial. We don't need more of that in American politics. We need less of it. We need more people who are not delusional, who are pro-science. But he just thinks that, you know, the answer to everything is prayer. And people who are promoting vaccines... They have the devil, and they're not going to make it to heaven. If you're president, you shouldn't be worrying about people's eternal salvation. You should be focusing on policy. But it gets worse. (laughs) When it comes to foreign policy, he hasn't developed one yet. Quote, I haven't developed it yet. I'm focused on protecting America first with our great military. Let's focus on ourselves first. On the issue of abortion, I am pro-life because I'm following the word of the Bible, Okay, if your response to foreign policy is, I don't know, don't run for president. And hopefully he'll take that pro-life position that he has with regard to abortion and apply it to foreign policy. That's a good starting place. But I mean, the things that are going on in the world are so complex that we can't have someone again like Donald Trump start at having zero knowledge. Like we need someone to come in with knowledge about the complex situations going on in the world, the Israel-Palestine situation, Morocco's occupation of the Western Sahara, the conflict between India and China. I mean, there's so much going on that we can't afford to have another dipshit be in power. Um, but he goes on, he's asked about prayer in schools, and he is he's for it. He says, reinstate in God's state, in God's country, the fear and love of God in all schools and organizations, and you chill the fear and love of everything else. So that was a plan by the devil to have our kids committing suicide at an all-time high by removing God, to have murders in Chicago at an all-time high because the human beings working for the devil removed God and prayer from the schools. That means more drugs, more murders, more suicide. On tax policy, I haven't done enough research on that yet. I will research that with the strongest experts that serve God and come back with the best solution. And that will be my answer for everything that I haven't researched. I have the earplug in and I'm going to use that earplug. Okay, I don't know what that means, but if you are explicitly looking for people who will serve God, you're going to find the evangelicals and they're most likely going to encourage you to come up with a tax plan that will lead to you getting a cut in your taxes. And on top of that, to say that... um. The reason why there's all of these children committing suicide and, you know, all of this murder is because God has been taken out of the schools. This is exactly what evangelicals say. They would, like, go for this. They would love this. They'd be enthusiastic about this platform. Like, this is theocracy. He wants to make America like the Christian equivalent of Saudi Arabia. And um, this is, this is just disgusting. Now, when it comes to George Floyd, he does seem to initially offer prayer as the main solution in lieu of criminal justice reform, but he does eventually land on amending the Constitution, saying, well, God has already started the healing slash this conversation alone is healing and revealing slash we all need to start praying and kneeling another bar after that but when a rhyme comes together i'm going to complete it not inside the lines created by organizations that we know as our reality the schools the infrastructure was made for us to not truly be all we can be but to be just good enough to work for the corporations that designed the school systems Uh, that's not never mind we're tearing that up what we'll do is we're not going to tear up the constitution what we will do is amend so unless we're talking about charter schools corporations did not design the school systems um i i don't know what he's trying to get at here um but what he's saying doesn't really make any sense and he's kind of just rambling and he doesn't seem he doesn't seem well um on top of that when it comes to other policy priorities He does say that he's against the death penalty because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So there's that. Um, And when it comes to other priorities, he wants to, quote, clean up the chemicals in our deodorant and our toothpaste. There are chemicals that affect our ability to be of service to God. I don't really know what that means. Maybe it means more regulations. um, But, you know, if you're appealing to Republicans with this evangelical rhetoric, then they're going to be a little bit peeved if you're proposing more regulations. So... He's kind of all over the place ideologically because he has no, like, coherent political ideology. It's just, it's randomness. It's it's bizarre. It's weird. Um, now, he isn't 100% sure that he's still going to run in 2020. He wants to run. He's saying he's going to run, but it's possible that maybe he waits until 2024, but at the end of the day, it's not going to be up to states and whether or not, you know, he makes their deadline. It's going to be up... To God, because he says, let's see if the appointing is at 2020 or if it's 2024, because God appoints the president. If I win in 2020, then it was God's appointment. If I win in 2024, then that was God's appointment. So, in his mind, he's so narcissistic that he believes that it's already a foregone conclusion. God is going to appoint him to the office of the presidency. It's just a matter of when. Maybe it won't be in 2024. Uh, Maybe it won't be in 2020, but if not, then maybe it'll be in 2024. It's just a matter of when God says, hey, Kanye, get in the White House. It's your time, bud. Um, Yeah, so this is the guy that Elon Musk, the science guy, decided to endorse immediately after he announced that he'd be running for president. Uh, But when someone shared an article with him detailing how Kanye is a huge anti-vaxxer and anti-abortion, Elon responded saying, we may have more differences of opinion than I anticipated. (laughs) You think? It's almost like politics isn't a game and people's lives are at stake. So, I mean, I I read this. I see the policies that Kanye West is putting out there. And this is something that actually would be uh, persuasive to a large contingent of the population. Because, I mean, think about this. After Donald Trump, a reality television star, became president, do you honestly think that this wouldn't appeal to someone in America, especially the conspiracy theories? So, I mean, it's dangerous. Even if it's laughably incoherent, it still is going to appeal to a certain crowd, right? Conspiracy people, evangelicals. There is, I think, a demand for this type of weird politics, right? And maybe there'll be a cult of personality like Donald Trump that forms around him. So if he chooses to run for president and is serious, could he actually have a shot? I mean, it's possible. I'm not going to say yes, but it is possible. But I will say that like, even though it's funny to like poke fun at his weird political ideas, it's deeply saddening because this is a man who's not well. And rather than encouraging this, people who are the closest to him, like his wife, his loved ones, they should be stepping in and saying, Kanye, let's stop doing this. He's not well. He is not well, he has delusions of grandeur, and the people around him who are letting this continue on, who know better, they're at fault here. I don't even necessarily blame Kanye West, because this is someone who mentally, he needs help. He needs people to help put him in check, right? Keep him uh, grounded in reality, but we're we're not getting that. And, you know, until that happens, we still have to call this out. We can't allow him to propagate these types of conspiracy theories and spread misinformation about vaccines, uh, say that the solution to COVID-19 is just prayer. This is absolutely nuts. It's unacceptable. And I say this as a fan of Kanye West, a former fan, I should say. I grew up on his music. Like, I was listening to him since the college dropout, bought every single album. Uh, So, I mean, if you're going to get involved in politics and start, you know, spreading this totalitarian message of theocracy and prayer in schools and anti-vax bullshit, it's unacceptable, and we have to call you out because you can't be spreading this misinformation. You just can't. So, um, he's not well. Um, you know, if you're laughing at him instinctively, I understand because what he's saying is nonsensical, but at the end of the day, you know, this is problematic for a number of reasons, not just that I think it's because he's unwell, but because Americans would actually fall for something like this. After Donald Trump, maybe this is the next, you know, cult of personality that Republicans and evangelicals flock to. So, I don't know. But I do know that uh, I don't like what I see from Kanye West with regard to what little policies we know thus far. It's deeply, deeply troubling, to say the least. So the task forces that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden formed at the end of the Democratic Party primary have come to a conclusion. And after months of deliberation on issues such as education, criminal justice reform, healthcare, climate change, um, they have predictably produced nothing of value. And I say that because, I mean, listen to Joe Biden's rhetoric. Has he moved at all on the issue of healthcare? Well, here's what he said in an interview with Medicare for All activist Adi Barkin it's no secret that i support medicare for all i don't so obviously he hasn't budged at all but don't worry because he thinks that healthcare is a right and not a privilege wink wink i mean it's just it's embarrassing and in 2019 if you were against medicare for all you should at least be moved a little bit in the direction after a pandemic, right? After the Supreme Court held that Donald Trump can let employers deny healthcare coverage on the basis of what they don't want to be offered if they're religious. I mean, he still hasn't changed in spite of all of this. You had no argument in 2019 and in 2020, you definitely don't have an argument, but regardless, he's standing strong. It's no secret that I support Medicare for all. I don't. I hate him so much. (laughs) I hate him so much. Um, Now, if you ask people on the task forces, people who Bernie Sanders specifically appointed, like AOC, they don't necessarily feel as, you know... um depressed about the outcome of these task forces as I do. For example, AOC tweeted, Today, the six Biden-Sanders unity task forces are unveiling final language. The climate task force accomplished a great deal. It was an honor to serve as co-chair with Secretary John Kerry. Among the notable gains, we shaved 15 years off Biden's previous target for 100% clean energy. The climate task force has agreed to elevate Biden's climate standards across the board and adopt a whole of government mobilization, including ambitious construction, mass transit and transport, and ag standards plus investment, creating millions of good jobs centering climate justice standards. So she feels as if they accomplished something on top of that. Dr. Abdul Al said who was appointed to the healthcare task force alongside, you know, Pramila Jayapal and others by Bernie Sanders, also feels as if these task forces were relatively successful, saying Joe Biden isn't Bernie. He does not support Medicare for all. We deeply disagree on this, but he does support universal coverage, expanding public coverage, reigning in pharma and health equity. Things we do agree on. Our task force recommendations build upon these aims. Now listen, I do truly respect and admire the effort that was made by people that bernie sanders appointed to these task forces i think that aoc and dr abdul al-sayed they were trying their best to you know make progress where it's possible but i think that this is in the end it's putting progressives and the left at a disadvantage because we're already showing our cards right we're telling the establishment we're definitely willing to compromise and this is what we take. So if they know that we'd be willing to water down our own policies, then why would they give us the full package? They're going to give us What we've agreed to water down and probably less than that right because when you already pre-negotiate well you have to assume you will be negotiated down even further and it's just it's a bad strategy and when it comes to something like medicare for all we shouldn't have to propose things to biden to consider he should be proposing things to us to get us on board right and the response shouldn't be well since you know you don't support medicare for all we'll accept uh you know reigning in big pharma no our response should be we're planting our feet in the ground And we're not budging it's going to be medicare for all and if you are elected president we're going to do everything in our power to fight to pass medicare for all through congress and if you don't sign that fucking bill we will stand outside of the white house with signs every single day until you do we're going to fight you until you pass our policy so you know it's just it seems like it's bad it's getting progressives to show their cards and admit that we will accept the half measures that democrats will only give us and you just you don't want to do that and i want the left to be more savvy now i'm not saying that there's like no potential for these task forces to produce good like let's say hypothetically speaking we get one win without watering down any other policies let's say we don't get medicare for all but in exchange for him not adopting medicare for all he agrees to you know sign on to legalizing cannabis nationwide that would be beneficial But we didn't get that either. As Politico reports, amid nationwide protests against police brutality, the criminal justice panel formed by Biden and Sanders got into heated debates in recent weeks over qualified immunity, a legal doctrine that shields police from being sued for misconduct. Progressives pushed to end it, but Biden appointees agreed only to sign onto a commitment to rein in the rule. Another flashpoint over marijuana ended similarly. Sanders' team argued in private meetings that they should legalize cannabis, but that idea was rejected. One task force member, described the disagreements over qualified immunity and pot as huge battles and multiple people involved said the criminal justice panel presented some of the biggest challenges for compromise. Now, what I don't understand is, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that the Sanders people were successful and they got the Biden people to agree to adopt legalizing cannabis. So they, you know, they print it out, they put it on Joe Biden's desk and they say, we recommend that you uh, agree to legalize cannabis. He can unilaterally just say, No, i don't support it so i mean like at the end of the day i i just i'm failing to see the utility in this it's good for corporate democrats like joe biden because he knows we're already willing to concede and accept his half half measures rather than like pulling him you know with his feet dragging to our side we're having to go the distance to meet him halfway when he should be meeting us halfway right so we're having to compromise but he's not willing to compromise. That's the issue here that I'm having with this. It seems weird to me that, you know, you have a bunch of people on these task forces come up with policies to recommend to a candidate who can unilaterally accept or reject any of them. So, I mean, if they agreed on everything, if these task forces all held hands and sang kumbaya, Joe Biden doesn't necessarily have to agree to adopt these policies. And even if he did agree to adopt these policies, you know, there's no guarantee that he would fight for them. So, these These are just, these seem like pointless efforts here. Um, And again, I'm trying not to, like, shit on what people like AOC and Dr. Abdul Saeed tried to do because, I mean, I think they were trying, but... It just, it doesn't seem conducive to anything that will benefit the left, and if anything, it's going to lead to us being placated. Now, the entire document is more than 100 pages, so I can't possibly go through all of it, but it seems like a lot of the victories, the key victories for the left, come in the form of climate change, uh, immigration, and a lot of Obama-era executive orders that Joe Biden is going to uh, sign into law. As NBC News reports, the recommendations, though, include a significant number of actions Biden could direct the executive branch to take without congressional approval, much as the Trump administration has systematically reversed Obama-era actions over his four years. They include executive orders on issues that are currently on the forefront of people's minds, like helping frontline workers, new guidelines on policing, use-of-force measures, housing, outsourcing jobs, addressing healthcare disparities, and undoing Trump's executive orders on immigration. So, in other words, the biggest victories that it seems like we got out of these task forces is that Joe Biden is being recommended to sign executive orders that undo the executive orders that Trump signed, which undid the executive orders that Obama signed, which I fully expected Joe Biden to do anyway. But the people involved seem very um, optimistic. Bernie Sanders tweeted, While Joe Biden and I and our supporters have strong disagreements about some of the most important issues facing our country, we also understand that we must come together in order to defeat Donald Trump, the most dangerous president in modern American history." Though the end result isn't what I or my supporters would have written alone, the task forces have created a good policy blueprint that will move this country in a much-needed progressive direction and substantially improve the lives of working-class families throughout our country. I look forward to working with Vice President Biden to help him win this campaign and to move this country forward toward economic, racial, social, and environmental justice." Yeah, I mean, to me, all of this, frankly, seems like window dressing. It's not going to make Joe Biden more appealing. If he, you know, agrees that these recommendations from the task forces to throw progressives a little bit more crumbs is going to be what he's going to do. The reason anyone would vote for Joe Biden is because he's not Donald Trump, period, period. End of story. So, you don't have to create this false appeal that's not there. And we want to make sure that Trump doesn't appoint another Supreme Court justice. You can make the case for Joe Biden without forcing progressives to show our cards and admit that we're willing to water down the policies that we support rather than, you know, holding strong. Him just not being Donald Trump is probably enough for most people. But to me, when I see, you know, this attempt to throw crumbs to progressives, I just feel insulted. You know, it puts us in a worse negotiating position later on when we actually do have power because we're already showing the establishment that we're more than willing to water down our own message. And it's just, it's all around, I think, harmful. So this didn't produce anything i mean we'll have to wait and see right i mean maybe joe biden will say wow i really like these recommendations i'm going to adopt x y and z but at the end of the day joe biden is joe biden like these recommendations mean nothing if joe biden himself doesn't actually change and if they recommend something that he thinks is a little bit too extreme he could just unilaterally dismiss it so it's not it's not really that <laughs> That, uh, inspiring to me. Like, if Joe Biden truly wanted to reach out to the left, this task force isn't necessarily the way to do that. He could just offer us policy concessions that he knows we want, right? But, I mean, in terms of Bernie Sanders, I get that he doesn't want to be blamed for Donald Trump getting reelected, and he shouldn't and won't, but- This is not the way to do it. It feels disingenuous. It feels manipulative. You don't have to try to lie to us and get us to think that Joe Biden is more progressive than he is in actuality. Joe Biden is appealing to people because he's not Donald Trump. And that's it. He's not progressive. We know exactly what we're getting with Joe Biden. Maybe a Supreme Court appointee that isn't extreme, right? Isn't some far right goon like Brett Kavanaugh. But what we do know is that this unity task force isn't going to move Biden because if he were moved at all, don't you think that a pandemic would have moved him on health healthcare. If a pandemic doesn't get him to change his mind on healthcare, for example, then I don't think that a task force's recommendation is. So, you know, I I feel like I'm a Debbie Downer here. I don't want people to be like, I don't know, overly doomish and gloomish about this, but I, I just feel like there are better ways to affect change. There are better routes that the left can take to influence people in power. And I feel like this is the least productive, if not harmful way at going about doing that. Hi, everyone. I have a great guest for you today. It is one half of The Surf's comedian, Lance. He's a Twitch streamer and a YouTuber. And I'm here to pick his brain about, you know, a variety of topics. So, Lance, thank you so much for coming on the program.
0: Uh, Thank you very much for having me. You're the first person to ever introduce me as a comedian. So, uh. well,
2: I I think that (laughs) it's definitely suitable. Uh, Your content is awesome. You're always making me laugh. And you you are you're a comedian. I think that that. That's accurate, Um, especially if someone like Dave Rubin calls himself a comedian, then I mean, come on, come on. I'm a (laughs) comedian. You know what I mean? But no, I I think that genuinely your content is great. I I think it's awesome. Uh, Okay, so I feel like most of my audience has got to know by now about your channel and what you guys do. But if they don't um, tell them what you're all about.
0: Uh, okay, so we do, uh, I guess, political comedy, uh, which is kind of a misnomer, I suppose. Uh, we're kind of like, it, I, I would equate us to being mimes uh, in the political arena. Like, we're we're pretty low on on the totem pole, but uh, we try to do our best. What we kind of did was, like, we would do long-form documentaries on a whole bunch of different right-wing ghouls. So, like, you know, you're Dave Rubens, you're Stephen Mullineaux, your you're Jordan Petersons. Uh, I happen to be Canadian, so I guess part of our ethos is we're trying to undo the damage that so many Canadians have wrought upon America... Uh, and again, whether it's you know Stephen Crowder, Lauren Southern, uh, man, all of them, Stefan uh, we're not sending our best. Gavin McInnes, uh, you know, I'm I'm already I'm, I'm I'm almost about to apologize, but uh, <laughs> I guess we got more prominent. We had about like 5,000 subscribers, and our YouTube channel got brigaded after we did a video on PewDiePie, uh, and we got false flagged for what is it, malicious scams and something like that. Not nothing that we were doing. Our channel got taken down, and then there was this really amazing online push to resurrect our channel from the grave, uh, and including from big names like I'd never thought would interact with me, like your Sam Cedars or your H-Bomber guy. Like They, they were all coming out of the woodwork. And we actually got, uh, I have it right here, I didn't prepare this prop, it's not like I always have it on hand or something, so this is not a bit, but um, I got it framed. This is an actual apology from, from the YouTubes. Because you know they they never apologize. Yeah, and like they're pretty renowned for never. doing But this is the actual tweet apology they made. So I'm I'm, wow. I'm pretty I'm pretty proud of this. This is a this is a cherished item.
2: That is uh, a function. frame-worthy item. Like they never take responsibility. And I will say I'm embarrassed to admit that I actually didn't find out about your guys's channel until you were taken down by YouTube. And then no, that's like, totally fine. <laughs> once once I heard about it, then you know I also was was upset by this. And then once it came back. I kind of, like, binged some of your guys' content, and it's great. But since you're here, I wanted to get your take on something because we kind of have breaking news. Like, it won't be breaking by the time that most people see this, but um, it is breaking as of now. So we heard that friend of the show, Dave Rubin,
5: My brain is still in recovery recovery mode from from taking in in so many high-level important
2: ideas. ideas. has (laughs) uh, made an endorsement. He will be voting for Donald Trump in November. Now, I know you're going to be shocked by this. You've been following Dave Rubin... I've been following Dave Rubin. What happened to him? He was
0: such a progressive before.
2: (laughs) He he was a classical liberal, and um, he's voting for Donald Trump. So any thoughts on this?
0: Uh, I, for one, am, uh, I don't know, floored. I I did not expect this, you know, I mean, after Dave Rubin has put so much effort into cultivating this, you know, deeply refined uh, left wing progressive technique, uh, I guess it made sense after a while. I mean, so many copies of his book got burnt. And uh, there's only so many book burnings you can attend before you're like, there's something wrong with the radical left. They've gone too far. And uh, yeah and i think that's i mean you know facetiousness aside uh everyone's done with the grift right like we yeah. we understand what's happening now like he's he's decidedly making his money because that's where it's it's paying him the best um yeah. i i do find it kind of strange with dave rubin though that he's got an enormous amount of hypocrisy right now i mean uh, n- not like more than usual but he seems to be on the the side of, like, um, it's the left that's always doing the the id poll, and it's the left that has to always talk about identity politics. I have yet to see him in the last like maybe five or six interviews where he doesn't talk about being gay. Like right. it's always like you know, and me a gay man, you know, and I, they 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 don't they don't bake me a, a cake, and I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine that you know Ben Shapiro won't bake me a cake. I'm okay with that, but I just I, I think it's
2: it's kind of strange. Yeah, that honestly bugs me so much because if you hate identity politics so much, then stop talking about identity politics like you can actually use your show to shift to a different conversation. But he, yep. every second he is reminding people that he's gay. And it's, I mean, we know what he's trying to do. He's trying to give himself like credibility as I, I think he, during his Marianne Williamson interview, he tried to use that as like evidence that he's a liberal. I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> laughable. He's a clown. And I will say that for the people who are thinking, well, this, you know, grift has reached its logical conclusion. He's not going to go further. I'm calling it now, in like a year or two, the grift will go either, even further depending on like where the conservative movement goes. And he may go full evangelical. To where he like announces that he's no longer homosexual, and we meet his new girlfriend Alice. Like this is where it's heading. <laughs> she
0: she's helped me so much. She cured me. Um, he he's actually uh, what was I gonna say? He's actually already evangelical. You're you're halfway right, right? Like oh, he's already okay. renounced his atheism. That's he's not true. Doing that anymore? Yeah. So yeah, that's it, true. It's, it, it was a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. And- okay. Maybe I need to I need to
2: stay caught up on. Yeah, yeah. 2024 for sure. I need to stay mm-hmm. caught up on my Dave Rubin news. I get most of my Dave Rubin news from like people on Twitter random, randomly shitting on him, but also from Michael Brooks and mm-hmm. your show as well, because I think you guys you really keep me in the loop um and you provide me with content where if he says something like just stupider than usual, then it's like, OK, I got to jump in. I mean, it's easy because it's like this is the low hanging fruit, but it's shocking that so many people fall for the grift it's infuriating to me that someone like him has over a million subscribers but like lefties are just scraping by you know what i mean like because the algorithm buries our content so it's it's a little bit of salt to be honest but at the same time have have you
0: noticed that a lot lately like with the (laughs) humanist report
2: yeah totally so i just looked and over the last 28 days Um, 8% of overall searches have been like suggested videos, which used to be like the majority. Um, and, you know, part of it is, sure, maybe it's because the election is over and people kind of like tune out of politics. I don't necessarily blame them. So I'm not removing my own culpability here. But it's definitely a change to the algorithm. Because, I mean, if you look at new channels like Christo Avalise, for example, a great Canadian, you guys sent mm-hmm. a phenomenal one there. Like he should be at 100,000 by now, you know, and four years ago, had he been making the same type of content, I think that he would be past you know, 100,000 people like David Dole would be past 500,000. So it's definitely it, it's it's frustrating to see the way that YouTube is suppressing these types of news channels. And and like if you aren't really sure what, what I'm talking about. Um, so I'm assuming that people who are watching this consume mostly indie media and left wing channels. But if you look in your recommended tab to the left, you know, you're going to see MSNBC, Fox oh, News sure. more often than not now. And that's really, you know, YouTube prioritizing who they deem as you know authoritative sources and once they kind of made that shift it hurt all of left-wing news channels um and you know there are some who are still able to thrive we kind of have these phases at least on my channel where we just see like ten thousand new subs in like a couple of weeks and then it goes back down to like zero on average um Mm -hmm. but you know it's it's just a lot more difficult now um it's harder for the up-and-comers and it's more difficult for people who have an audience already to grow that audience. Um, so, you know, when you see people like Dave Rubin and right-wingers thrive, the alt-right in particular, you know, people like Sargon of Akkad, it, it is, it irritates me, like it pisses me off, you know, because there's there's so much going on that happens to the left that nobody talks about.
0: I think there's, like, there is one thing to be said about the fact that the left, especially what is so-called, quote-unquote, bread tube, was really concerned with doing deeply researched documentaries, right? Like, that's what we used to do as well. And, like, I I still love it, like, the long-form documentary, but... It's a very long process, right? Like it's it's obviously like we we want to bring the the biggest facts to the plate. Like I know the left gets accused of uh, feelings over facts, but like if you look at the amount of work that goes into an H bomber guy or like a philosophy tube video and these really long form ones, right? Like it's it's endless amounts of citations and sources and stuff like that. And one month, like one upload a month, does not compare to someone like Sargon of Akkad who and and Tim Poole actually was one of the ones who really weaponized this. They would film just a two-hour stream where Tim Pool is allowed to speak about anything, and I, I do mean anything. I don't know if you watch his live shows; like they are, they I are just, and oh, they are performance art of of the highest level. He's it's him and his partner Weed Lord, and the two of them are there, and they they can just talk about like I've never seen uh, a more unhinged, uh, uncohesive line of thought come out of a human than a two-hour like Tim Pool uh, podcast. Like it, the the topic could start out talking about hey uh, Donald Trump is thinking about building the wall within maybe 30 seconds they'll be talking about uh chinese viruses and then uh 15 seconds later the moon and and like Jesus. it just it's like, it, and it, it all seems like as if it, neither of them are like i don't know at all appalled by what is happening or even <laughs> taking it back like they, it's a very good one two combination but anyways my point of all this being because i'm starting to do what i'm accusing him of is that they will take this two-hour broadcast and then clip it into four uploads for the day So there'll be four Tim Pool uploads that day, and that'll just game the algorithm like no one's business, because they're going to have very inflammatory thumbnails and and highlights, right? Like, uh, Obama is secretly a socialist uh, confirmed, right? And then the next one will be, uh, you know, Alex Jones proven right about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thumbnails, pictures, red text. And that's enough for people to be like, okay, I guess I'll try to click on it. Enough people start doing that. The algorithm starts to feed into it. And then, you know, it gets to the point now where I, I can watch one Jordan Peterson video, and the entire right side of my bar is going to be nothing but like everything from Nick Fuentes to Jared Taylor to Stefan for Well, not Stefan Molyneux anymore. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that, that was the way.
2: Yeah. And that kind of gets into a conversation um, that I wanted to have with you because I think that you are basically an expert on the field of the alt-right and this pipeline because it's it's really <laughs> prevalent. And more so than people think. Um, so Stephen Molyneux or Stefan well, Molyneux... I, I do
0: have my official certificate right
2: here at <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the School of Old rhetoric. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, so I, wasn't it... I think it was last week or the week before where Stefan Molyneux was banned from YouTube. He was also banned from Twitter subsequently as well. And I wanted to get your take on deplatforming because for me, I kind of feel like my position on this has been almost a 180. Like at first, I was very... Um, I wasn't against deplatforming unequivocally, but I was very touchy on the subject because the way that YouTube... You know uses their algorithm it almost never hits the intended targets right so like the first wave of demonetization led to lgbtq plus channels being demonetized and that was really you know that scared me just because as a gay person like when i was coming out i watched so many coming out videos and to think that that type of content would be discouraged that was like genuinely harmful to me so you know it made me kind of do a double take about the intended result of deplatforming but at the same time i've evolved to the point where um just because YouTube is stupid and incompetent doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't follow their own terms and conditions with regard to hate, speed, uh, hate speech. And on top of that, you know, the left functionally over the course of the last couple of years, as we've kind of alluded to, we've been deplatformed in a way. Like, I'm not going to claim that we've been fully deplatformed, but we've been suppressed by this algorithm. So I, I don't necessarily feel the need to defend the right on, you know, the basis of freeze peach When one, they don't ever defend us. And two, we're already kind of the ones being deplatforming, being deplatformed. So if I'm going to go to bat for anyone, I want it to be us. So I wanted to get your take on this and the deplatforming of Stefan Molyneux, because if anyone deserves to be (laughs) deplatformed, I mean, I think it'd be a white supremacist like him who's explicitly racist.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Richard Spencer as well, I think, was, was right, taken Right. a second time. Well, I that's mean, maybe a third time. He's, he pops up. And, and same with Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes got taken down, I think, like maybe a month and a half ago. And then he pops back up in these new kind of pseudo channels where you're like, well, that's clearly Nick Fuentes again trying to yeah. pop back up on it. Um, In my opinion, honestly, I, I think that my, I, I, my guiding star on this is kind of like I try to keep it at the levels of what we deem to be hate speech. Uh, within the right. country so um, I am completely for uh, and this is I'm going to say this uh, like unironically the marketplace of ideas right mm-hmm. like the whole Dave Rubin philosophy like you know we should have the free marketplace of ideas where the dial get turned up to 11 and all, <laughs> like I actually I like that well I like that idea that we should we should oh. allow people with with opposing views to me you know to, to be on the platforms I'm totally fine with that and I stop at is it going to be like direct targeted harassment so for someone like Alex Jones because he's kind of the classic example right Alex Jones is act actively targeting the parents of families who died in Sandy Hook. And he did it to the point that the parents were getting harassed to such a degree that one of the fathers committed suicide. That is, a, to me, a very clear cut and dry example. If I If I owned one of these tech companies, Cut him out, right? He's he's causing direct uh, harm to, to individuals, you know. Um, where it becomes a bit of a gray area is what if you have someone on there, say like uh, Ben Shapiro, for example, who intentionally misgenders people because he doesn't feel that it's something that's wrong. Whereas you can make a very strong argument in my mind that intentionally misgendering members of the trans community can contribute to an atmosphere that you know is explainable in the really high rates of suicide. You know that it's because of their vilification uh, as a whole in society. So if we have a person on there who's Constantly saying like you're not a she or a he, right? And this is just the way that everyone should. There, there is a, a, a danger to that as well. Is it targeted though? Is it, is it towards a specific individual or or doxing? You know, that would be another thing that I would I would say like you should have a zero tolerance policy for those kind of things. I think ultimately, if I'm being totally intellectually honest, I don't think the left is intentionally suppressed by YouTube, just like I don't think the right is intentionally censored by Twitter, unlike what Tim Poole likes to say. I don't think that's the case. I think all these tech companies follow one guiding principle, and that's money. Like yep. that's 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 ultimately what they care about. The algorithm is looking to what can keep people and their eyes on content for as long as possible. And the right wing just had a very big head start against the left because the left wasn't using YouTube as this kind of like megaphone. Right. They they were fine with all the other forms of social media that they were dominating. Meanwhile, the the, uh, the right wingers were cultivating this really, really powerful force on YouTube until they became a force to be reckoned with. I remember Paul Joseph Watson was one of the first people to say, like, you know, we're absolutely dominating this platform. And he wasn't wrong. And now it's to a point where, again, if you if you search one or two videos, boom, it pops up all over, right? You have that really thing. Um, And you're also right about the fact that I think just news in general, especially because you talk about Mainstream news, right? Like mm-hmm. you report on mainstream stories, you report on Joe Biden stuff like that. So you are getting suppressed by very safe, profitable uh, corporations like your MSNBCs, your CNN. That's just easy for them to, to put up there and to to you know promote because they know they don't have to worry about it. Whereas you know maybe maybe Mike might say something that is a little bit uh, controversial, right? right. You, you might make a, a video montage about Joe Biden, or you might make one about how Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is not a communist devil, you know, like she's actually like pretty reasonable things. Like that that might not be as safe as just msnbc doing what they always do and, and at least in my opinion
2: yeah no i think you're absolutely right and i am bra- glad that you brought that up about you know this not being intentional this is just about money um i i think that the left if they were able to draw in the money in terms of like ad revenue that the right does then maybe the algorithm would ease up but this isn't something that you know i, I don't believe that there's like a bunch of uh youtube executives like let's target the left more. like it's <laughs> totally just you know they Which make great. Cha- right oh totally totally you know they make changes to the algorithm And they make these changes exclusively on the basis of what will increase their profits, you know, maximize revenue. So it's not anything that's nefarious. It's just something that we're dealing with. And I'm not even going to suggest that this is a permanent thing. Um, You know, maybe it's just now they change the algorithm all the time. And and you can tell when they change the algorithm because you'll be like riding high. And like, I'll put out videos that get like 50,000 views, you know, uh, every single day. And then all of a sudden it just falls off a cliff. Then I realize they changed the algorithm. And I think that this is the consensus that everyone um, has acknowledged that these are due to uh, really quiet changes to the algorithm. They don't necessarily let us know about all of these changes. We just kind of have to roll with the punches. Um, But yeah, it's definitely
0: a political agenda to them demonetizing LGBTQ content, though. Like, there's, yeah. there's no question about that, right? And that was the big reason that I left YouTube to stream on Twitch instead, because uh, I had interviewed uh, a non-binary inter- uh, individual, and I noticed that when right after I put uh, their interview up on the, the site, instantly demonetized. And also, mm. it was demonetized as I was broadcasting it, and uh, the thing, uh, I forget what the pop up was, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, the, the controversial content or something. And afterwards, I was like, it, it's happening again and again. It's happening when I interviewed a lesbian, it happened uh, shortly thereafter, when I interviewed another non binary individual. And so I, I was like, there's a there's a pattern here. And and clearly, they think that these topics are controversial, which is astounding, because YouTube takes such a big corporate stance during Pride Month, right? Yeah, they're really, really big on like, our logos or the rainbow, and we care about this and we're going to highlight all these you know various different uh, actors and stuff like that
2: Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. And I will say though, um, there is a good sign because anytime that I've put up anything with LGBTQ or trans in the tags, like Mm -hmm. I just expect that's going to be demonetized. Um, And I think a lot of us have that expectation, but we kind of just roll with the punches because we don't necessarily base what we're going to put out on what will or or won't be demonetized. But uh, I think it was like last summer, I put out a video that was very explicitly like, um, you know, trans rights. It was about transgender rights. I can't remember the particular topic. I think it was maybe like a Trump thing that he did uh, with regard to trans rights and it didn't get demonetized um, and so I think I even tweeted about that. I'll try to find the tweet to put it on screen. I can't remember specifically. And it was so shocking. It was like, oh, well, maybe this is a change. If this is up and it's not getting demonetized, maybe they're reversing that policy. But then again, I put up, you know, a video on LGBTQ rights a month later and it does get hit. So it's it's tough. You know, for me, I don't necessarily care about the money aspect. I think a lot of creators acknowledge that demonetization is just something that we deal, that we deal with now, but we have Patreon to supplement that. So it's not the biggest issue. What really sucks is the fact that when you get limited ads, that also means you get limited reach in terms of like, who's going to see your video, less recommendations. Um, So it's kind of like this snowball effect where less potential people who would like your content, who maybe would be a patron, uh, they don't get to see that. So it does suck. And I hope that it Mm -hmm. does change. We're completely hopeless, you know, in terms of like what we can do. We're just up to the whims of YouTube unless there's a sizable enough competitor that comes along. But hey, you know, we do what we can. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I wanted to true. I wanted to ask you, because um, this is kind of a spicy topic, um, and we'll try to sanitize the more controversial con- components, but I think it's a discussion that's interesting, and I haven't commented on this. I'm not sure if you have either, but Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs, he posted an article, uh, two spicy. articles. This is spicy. It is. Uh, so the first article that he posted was, isn't right-wing populism just fascism? And he kind of directly takes a shot at rising on the hill um, over a book that I actually have. Um, oh, okay. How is and it? so I haven't read it yet. Um, I, I, bought it because I really like crystal ball. I think she's sharp, but part of the reason why I bought this is because apparently there's an explanation of what the new right is. Now, my understanding, maybe this is, uh, too simplistic is that right wing populism isn't a thing. Like I have never, um, thought of populism in terms of right wing or left wing. It's just whatever is popular. Mostly mm-hmm. economic policy, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know what right-wing populism means. To me, I always thought if you're a right-wing populist, that's usually you're just a fascist. So I I was hoping to kind of get an explanation and I haven't read it yet. So maybe Sagar goes on to explain what he means by the new right and right-wing populism. But Nathan J. Robinson's argument basically is that he doesn't really lay that out. And mm-hmm. so right-wing populism is essentially just fascism, because think about who we see as right wing, quote unquote, populists, you know, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, yeah, Tucker Carlson, um, Donald Trump, and they're all fascists. So the question is, you know, is uh, right wing populism a thing? And how does the left respond to that? Because his argument is kind of directed at crystal ball, in the sense that he thinks that she's kind of enabling this type of fascism by one, not challenging it, and two, by kind of sanitizing it, right? Because Nathan J. Robinson admits that he agrees with what Sagar is saying 80% of the time. But mm-hmm. the thing is that, you know, if you allow yourself to just talk about discussions where you, you know, agree, where if you narrow that parameters, you're kind of not really getting the full sense of that person and how problematic they may be so for like an extreme example if I were to talk to David Duke about just cats and food I'm sure that you know <laughs> I it would, would seem
0: to see that conversation it would be so <laughs> weird it'd be
2: a little scary because uh, he scares me
0: <laughs> I, I don't like black cats I'll tell you <laughs>
2: <laughs> totally uh no it, like if we had a conversation about that you know it'd be benign it wouldn't I wouldn't know that he's a white supremacist we'd Agree seemingly on everything, but if we, you know, widen that scope and we started talking Mm -hmm. about identity politics, uh, you know, politics in general, then it would be problematic. So, you know, the argument not to um, kind of put words in Nathan J. Robinson's mouth, but what I took away from this is that crystal ball is kind of helping to present this fake illusion of, you know, right wing populism. When in okay. actuality, it's, it's not a real thing. It's just fascism I and mean, we shouldn't enable these people. Now, I don't know what the implication is. I don't know if he thinks that like we should kick... Sagar off of the hill. I don't think that's what he's implying. Maybe he just wants Crystal Ball to challenge him more. Uh, but I thought that it was a thought provoking piece because this is something that I've kind of grappled with. Like, I'm not sure how many people remember this, but back in it 2018 or 2019, me and Kyle Kalinsky kind of had a similar discussion on the Progressive Voice show, but about Joe Rogan, right? And, you know, okay. whether or not he is acceptable, you know, uh, because I, I take issue with his stance on trans rights and whatnot. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's probably
0: it, his most problematic thing. Absolutely. I, I, kind of, I kind of feel he's, uh, I'm not going to get too derailed with this, but he's kind of a Rorschach test for whoever his guest is. Because I find when he has Cornell West on the show, uh, you will have just an incredible elucidation on the history of socialism, and you'll be yep. in America, and you'll be like, this is a beautiful hour of my life. I, I, I'm very happy I spent this time. He has Ben Shapiro on, and he's a transphobic piece of shit. And you're like, yeah. oh, well, that, that, was, that was a terrible hour and a half. I'll never get back, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like a, a Dave Rubin, but not as bad as Dave Rubin. Like, he pushes back yeah. sometimes, like the Candace Owens uh, interview on Climate change—that's a great example. I think I even talked about that on my program. But you know, it's just a matter of like, how does the left respond? And I think that Kyle Kolinsky does make a really solid point in that. You know, if you think that people like Dave Rubin, uh, or excuse me, not Dave Rubin, but uh, Joe Rogan or Crystal Ball are in a way inadvertently offering you a type of like pipeline to the alt right, then mm-hmm. you know, having them you know um, offer left perspectives could potentially be a pipeline out of the alt-right as well. So, you know, it's complicated and I think this is a really nuanced and somewhat messy subject. And I wanted to get your take on this because I feel like you really have a solid understanding of the alt-right and you know how people kind of get trapped in that pipeline. So, you know, what is your take on this? Is the left being a little bit too like cancel culturey, or do you think there's actually something there with Nathan J. Robinson's argument?
0: so um i guess if we took it what's the classical definition of fascism you you're basically combining economic populism right that's what hitler was doing so ideas that are very uh social in origin where we're talking about socialized medicine things like that for example with uh, right wing or far right conservatism Combine the two right i mean even far past i'm not i'm not going to call the right wing as, as far fascist as they were but so are, are we seeing that in someone like Tucker Carlson? I think even before Tucker Carlson, you were starting to see that with people like, say, Alex Jones, hmm. who was constantly talking about instead of, uh, I mean, they would usually have a couple of dog whistles here, but it would talk about the globalists, right? It's the globalists and the elites, and it, it's all of them right off in the corner or something like that. He's he's talking about that and it's all it's all coded for you know the international bankers and, and you know in brackets all, all that kind of stuff but yeah. they're constantly vilifying this idea of there is something external and I mean if you're on the left you'll understand it it happens to be like there's no secret to any of this uh, the the people who control the levers of power happen to be the rich right the the the, the, the quote unquote elites we we know who they are you have to look at the, who's the Fortune 500 right uh, we know who the billionaires are we know what they own we know what assets they have we know the oil companies and all that kind of stuff. We understand that, but they will try to take that same idea because everyone experiences alienation, right? We're all everyone's uh, having trouble finding employment. Even worse now with COVID, 40, 40 million extra Americans unemployed. But you've got this idea where everyone is, is experiencing this alienation, and now we've got this section of the right that's tapping into those same kind of things and and selling them and repackaging them with uh, right wing populism as well. And that's what I would well sorry I know right wing populism is a thing. I agree mm-hmm. with your statement there, right? But that's that's what I would say is quote unquote right wing populism. And in the case of Crystal Ball and, uh, you know, during Bernie Sanders campaign, I was a huge fan of her uh, Mm -hmm. and it was just, it was really nice seeing uh, maybe just like a mainstream Sunday morning, like Good Morning America style show that was actually talking about points with Bernie Sanders, right? Whereas now I cannot stand it. Like if I, even if I hear that little jingle, that like I actually get like, you know, a visceral, like uh, fearful, like I can fear my, my skin crawling because A, I think it's come out now at this point, I think one of the biggest producers or founders on the show happens to be deeply invested in the oil companies of the US, and I've read a number of articles, I think even The Intercept did a, an article on this, how the Hill exists to kind of sow dissemination between the progressive movement and the liberal movement of the United States, mm-hmm. so there might be an argument there, I'm not going to go too tinfoil hat. I was just making fun of Alex Jones two seconds ago, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but the idea then that we have, we have this show in which she's starting to say, and I noticed she was saying this a lot before she got called out on it, that Tucker Carlson is Right about this. And it usually starts with that preface, right? Like, I just want to say this. He's an awful person, all right? He's a white nationalist. We get it. He's a mouthpiece. But he's not wrong about blank. and there seem to be a lot of those segments, right? And Tucker was actually right about this. Tucker's right about this. And yes, he's a bad person, but it is true that there is these global elites that control the levers of power. And into to Crystal Ball, I'm sure she thinks that it's it's the rich. I'm sure she thinks that it's, you know, again, the the elites actually are who the elites are, right? The the like I said, the the, the millionaires, the billionaires who control most of the levers of power in the United States. But you can't repackage what Tucker says for the left. That's where the danger comes in. And that's what I would agree with this idea. And maybe that is, you know, i read Nathan J. Robinson's article. I haven't read the book that you have in your hands. But that that's where I agree with Nathan. that the, the, You can't normalize Tucker and his ideas. You have to consistently call them out for what they are, because otherwise it's very insidious.
2: Yeah, and one of the issues that Nathan J. Robinson also brings up is that there's this... Um, explicit assumption in the book that it would be beneficial for the left if we teamed up with the right. If the populist left and the populist right kind of formed this, you know, economic alliance, then we can get a lot of things done. And I think that that is something that I unequivocally reject because I think that- you know, if you want to form a coalition, that makes sense. We need a rainbow coalition. I think that Fred Hampton kind of, he he led the way on that, you know, uh, but it has to be an anti-racist coalition because you can't disaggregate, you know, the race issues from the class issues. So you can't throw people of color and trans people under a bus and say, well, we're going to team up with them for these economic issues, but you're going to have to wait by the side. Like, it doesn't work that way because the, these things are inextricably linked. So that's one of the things that, you know, had I read the book, I would have also been turned off by that because I absolutely don't like this notion of teaming up with uh, you know the populist right because I don't think that there is a populist right and I I am glad that you brought up the Tucker Carlson thing like he's a bad person but like that still normalizes someone who is very clearly a white supremacist and Mm -hmm. you know by trying to point out the good point that he makes and since he's so nefarious you know it's great that he made a good point you know positive reinforcement sure i believe in positive reinforcement but this is an actor who's very intelligent who knows exactly what he's doing you know he throws you a couple of crumbs with regard to economic issues but if you accept what he what he has once he gets you in then you're pulled into a very nefarious, explicitly white supremacist agenda. And maybe, you know, he doesn't convince you right away. But as you listen to him more, because you were hooked by his economic policy statements, well, then maybe, you know, you start opening your mind a little bit more to white supremacy. So I think it's it's a dangerous path to go down. And I think that there really is. Like, I don't want to say that, you know, um, the the show The Rising is awful, because I also watched it a lot, you know, during the primaries. But I think that we do have to be careful as lefties to not allow Snakes like you know Tucker Carlson to be legitimized by us, you know either wittingly Mm -hmm. or unwittingly, and it it, like part of it is I I feel like it should be just on its face laughable because you have Sagar and Jetty who's the co-host of The Hill Rising. He's a Trump supporter and he rails against neoliberal Democrats, but Trump is a neoliberal. Like he ran as a populist, but he governs as a neoliberal. So. How how do you not abandon people who aren't living up to your populist principles? So to me, it seems like a Trojan horse to, you know, the the alt-right. And that's why I think that there is something to, you know, Nathan J. Robinson's point here. But I I don't want to discount, you know. He's he's not the only one making
0: that critique either, by the way. Sure. It hasn't just been coming from Nathan J. Robinson. I've, I've seen a lot of other figures on the left, not, not just in relation to, to Crystal in particular, but just the idea of the left starting to embrace elements of that right wing populism, totally. whatever you want to say, you know, quote, unquote right wing populism.
2: Yeah. And I think we have to reject it and we have to be very yep. vocal about it because, you know, if you give them an inch, they take a mile because they are very, very um strategic and they're savvy like people nowadays you're not going to find someone just say hey guys i'm a nazi here's a swastika <laughs> like they use code words like i, they I think do that yeah. they hide power levels, video. Right? exactly exactly yeah. so i mean you have to you have to not get duped by them, in other words. But at the same time, you know, I, I want to bring up Kyle Kalinski who made a good response video to this, you know, to where he says, you know, you, you have to acknowledge that the average, like, layperson, the normies, they're not going to necessarily be as keen to these things. And by criticizing people like Crystal Ball, it seems like we're being, like, overly cancel or whatever. So it's mm-hmm. it's tough. I, I feel like we're walking a fine line, but it, there's I, so I much have at no stake. desire
0: to cancel her. Like, I, right. I, I like I, I don't really say, I'm not a cancel culture person in general because I don't think it works. I don't think there's such yeah. a thing. You know, if it works, J.K. Rowling wouldn't be allowed to tweet anymore. Tucker <laughs> Carlson but, wouldn't have a show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think uh, cancel culture is a real thing. Yeah. Like, in, when it comes, actually, could I just, quick sidebar, what was your thoughts on Kalinsky's latest defense of Stefan mono Because he's, he's coming out as a bit of a free speech, absolutist right now like do you do, you, do you, um, that
2: take? i don't know what he said i'm assuming that he said that St- stefan molyneux shouldn't be deplatformed but i would disagree with that um it's, it's,
0: the, it's the idea that it's a slippery slope and that you know it's only a matter of time before he, he, i think he said like you know you, you think it's okay when they're coming for people on the far right what happens when they come for people on the far left and then yeah. I, it, I was like, well, I can't really think of what the far left is. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think maybe his example was Farrakhan or something. And I was like, I don't consider him in any way to be a, a leftist. I think I consider him an anti-Semite. And I think he's a very, a very isolated example. And he's been deplatformed. So I don't think it applies to anyone yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, my take on that is, uh, I kind of had a conversation with Kyle about this during the uh, Crowder-Maza situation, where Steven Crowder was demonetized, and I was, you know, all for that. Um, But uh, I'm not worried about them coming for the left, because we're already dealing with it. Like, they have functionally deplatformed a lot of lefties, um, you know, as we kind of talked about earlier. So it's not like, um, it's not the biggest issue. But for me, like, the way that I think about this is, um, you know, you have to be, you have to be how do I put this? You want to make sure that you're not allowing people like Stefan Molyneux to spread their hatred because you can defend his free speech rights if you're a free speech absolutist. And I think that that's that's fine if you are, you know, principled and you're adhering to that. But you have to acknowledge, uh, and I'm sure Kyle Kalinske does, that, you know, this is someone who would never defend your free speech rights. And, you know, fascists, if you allow them the free speech rights to, you know, um, gain popularity and power, then they will deplatform everyone else and not support free speech. I think uh, it what was it Richard Spencer who said he doesn't support a- free speech absolutism or something to that effect. Um, so, you know, uh, definitely, it's, definitely a
0: huge fan of Tucker Carlson too, right? I think him, yeah. Jared Taylor, uh, David Duke—they all think that Tucker Carlson speaks for them. They're like, oh, he's our best, our best voice in the mainstream media. Happens to be Tucker Carlson. You know? mm. He knows he speaks Makes the sense. truth. You Makes know. sense. Here's 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 a good uh, here's a good quote for you. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but uh, I think it was Žižek who was talking about uh, how a little bit of dogmatism is actually a good thing. And he's like, we we can determine mm-hmm. as a society. He's like, you wouldn't argue with someone. Well, I, I should probably be like, you wouldn't. <laughs> but you wouldn't <laughs> argue with someone about the merits of rape right like you wouldn't mm-hmm. have that debate so there's there's nothing to be had there no, it doesn't matter what their argument is uh, he's like well it feels good or whatever That like that's a non-starter we, we know we can cut off the bar so like a little bit of dogmatism within society can actually be a defining characteristic of the level to which we've reached so I think I think that is okay to to an extent right I, I don't right. think that every single person who says something like I I'm again I'm very very I'm further on the free speech train than I think most people on the left are and I usually stop at the limits of hate speech right if it's mm-hmm going to directly damage or harm people that's where i'm like okay i don't think you like your freedom of speech can also be limiting someone else's freedom of speech and in, in just in, a, in the exact opposite direction you just don't think of it that way um sorry i've, I've done i've done the tim pool thing we're so far off your topic uh <laughs> but uh, yeah back to, back to kalinski and, and and you know uh crystal ball uh, i i think she, i think she has i think she 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 was aware of it as well because she apologized she she issued a video mm-hmm. or sorry i don't know if she directly apologized but it was more of a just like i know what everyone's saying i've seen the i've read the articles and everything and uh, to this extent like i am not praising tucker carlson he's a horrible person he's a white nationalist let's like you know get that out you know that's it's a non-starter kind of thing
2: Yeah. And I I will say just for the record, I I like Crystal Ball. I'm not assuming like malintent in criticizing because I've also done horrible things uh, on my channel. You know, it's it's all about growing, right? We're human beings. We're imperfect. Like I've platformed H.A. Goodman and I kind of like attribute my channel to his success in a way. And now he's a MAGA chat. So that's something that I really think about. Like, how am I vetting these people who I bring on? my channel and whatnot and to kyle kalinsky's point i think that what he says like his principal stance i'm gonna on get this, you so canceled i'm gonna be so, i am i'm a, i've already been canceled so
0: <laughs> i'm gonna take the biggest 180 mike <laughs> god damn it why did i have lance on what fucking lands now he's a
2: trump supporter no no um no i so i really like kyle kalinsky's stance even if i disagree because he is so principled when it comes to free speech and like he sticks to it um And I wish that I were as consistent as him on this issue, but my stance has changed a little bit. And I kind of feel like that free speech absolutism that he champions, it only works if we all have the same agreement on free speech. Like, if people like Stefan Molyneux and Dave Rubin actually were the free speech champions that they say they are, then I think that that stance could work. But because they're not, because they would take away our free speech rights, that's why I think it doesn't necessarily work in practice.
0: My thoughts on that, though, is that, like, I, I am someone who, I'm on the same page as you. I am completely fine with uh, apologizing. Maybe it's the Canadian in me, right? But like, I'm completely <laughs> fine with apologizing. I'm fine with taking things down. Like, part of being what a quote unquote progressive is to me is that I'm constantly changing and evolving my beliefs based on right. the information as it's proposed to me, right? Like, if you had told me 10 years ago uh, about uh, aspects of the trans community, I would have had no idea what you're talking about. I would have been like, what, isn't that just people dressing up in drag or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, like I wouldn't have, and like, obviously, I, I try, like anyone else, you try to read and you learn, You better yourself so the idea of just being like i don't delete any tweets i've ever made i don't do anything because i want a permanent leisure and like uh to a certain extent like I, I wish that Kyle Klinsky would take down the the old tweets where he calls people the F-slur for example as an insult right uh, and I understand that he he's of the mind where he doesn't have to change anything he does but to me that's, that's kind of the same thing that Trump does you know like Trump never apologizes Trump never backs down so do most strongmen you know That's it's kind of this absolutism in which like I never want to show I don't think it's I don't like I'm, please don't think I'm comparing the two of them I think like I like Kyle Klinsky like, right, I, right. I've, I've interviewed we love before,
2: Kyle man. we don't like Trump yeah, yeah I'm not trying to <laughs>
0: <laughs> trying to you know juxtapose the two of them back to back but what i what i am trying to say is that like i i think there's no shame or problem in either admitting when you're wrong or even trying to better yourself as a content creator right like mm-hmm. you know take your stuff down take uh take a video down like I, I did it very recently uh i i was debating a right-wing uh race realist by the name of actual justice warrior and mm-hmm. he had called out a video i did on uh, ferguson and mike brown and uh before he even did a video on me and and my you know take on the Mike Brown incident, I was already getting feedback from my own community where they were saying this was a really bad take, Lance. You know, like you because I was I was kind of just downplaying the aspects because I hadn't read the Department of Justice report, I didn't know uh, like all the facts behind it, and I was just saying like, well, Mike Brown was just he was walking while black, and yet, and yet another case of just police brutality and all this kind of stuff, and everyone was like, you should actually be more informed on this, right? You can't. It's going to look worse long term on both you and the left if you just try to. have have this absolutist like you know uh, black people are being persecuted because they are there's there's an incredibly huge problem in the united states when it comes to the black community and the way they are treated uh, systemic racism historical racism all this kind of stuff but to do this in this one case is bad so yes based on that feedback i took the video down and then because he made a, a video on me he he actually thought that he had credit for this or something and we ended up doing like a very spicy debate afterwards but Again, I I have no problem with that. Like, I, I I never will. Like, you'll you'll probably find me down the road uh, apologizing for things that I'm saying in this interview right now. But that that <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's no problem with that to me. You know, I think I, yeah. I, I I don't see that as a sign of weakness. I see it as a sign of growth.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I like I'm not sold on this idea that cancel culture is a thing because people like I said, like, if cancel culture were as powerful as people make it out to be, then Tucker Carlson wouldn't have a show. A lot of people would be canceled, you know? Um, But, like, growth is important. Like, I think that there's this assumption with this cancel culture rhetoric to kind of shift gears into cancel culture that um, the left is uncompromising and they're never willing to accept growth. But that the opposite is true. Like, I totally agree with you. Like, we are pro-growth. Like if you're going to grow and change, I think that's really important. Like Cult of Dusty is one of the best people to talk to on this. Um, I haven't talked to him yet, but he's someone who I actually, I was subscribed to him a long time ago, like in the early 2010s, but I actually unsubscribed because the content that he made, uh, he made a particular video about Black Lives Matter that I disagreed with. I thought it was a bad take. So I unsubscribed and like he's back now, he's streaming and he talks about All these bad takes I had, they were terrible. I said this, I said that, and I disagree with them. Um, And so I I think that that's really phenomenal. That's beautiful. And for me, if I were to go back to like the early humanist report, Catalog, I would probably find a lot that I disagree with because the thing is that we're constant as human beings, we're constantly growing. And if you're not growing, then I think that's bad. Like it mm-hmm. nobody wants to admit that they were wrong, nobody wants to back down. Everybody wants to be able to commend themselves for holding strong on something on a particular mm-hmm. position throughout the years, but that's not realistic for everything. So I think that you know encouraging growth is important. Um, and cancel culture, like, we keep seeing it, like, there's this letter from uh, Harper, the letter as it's deemed <laughs> yeah, with, you know, we name. Can get into that. I saw a video from David Dole on this, and he basically said everything that I wanted to, so I kind of feel like, okay, well, it's out there. It's, a, it's in the universe. But I mean, like, it's, cancel culture is not really an issue. Um, it, it's more of a thing that is used in a way, I think to ironically to silence the left right because like if you criticize someone like jk rowling for example what is her first defense oh well this is cancel culture everyone's too pc Mm -hmm. but it's like well you're not canceled though you're you're a billionaire in your mansion so you're not being canceled and you're using cancel culture as a defense to shut down debate about your actions so what is your Mm -hmm. take on cancel culture because i'm irritated whenever i hear the words personally
0: I, I think we're we're just gonna be uh, this is gonna be an exercise in masturbation I guess. <laughs> I, well, no, I I, com- I completely agree with you. Like, I, I I don't think cancel culture is a real thing. Uh, I think that like even someone like J.K. Rowling is going to even if J.K. Rowling was deplatformed off of uh, Twitter tomorrow for uh, you know hate speech uh, towards the trans community. Um, she would still be a, bil- a billionaire. She yeah. she could start her own Twitter tomorrow uh, if she wanted to, right? And I'm not even saying learn to code, but she could actually she has the money to to start her entire social media company. Um, it, it, I I don't think it's a real thing, and I don't think it it bears fruit in terms of like where are the results can. Can you give me examples of people who were canceled, right, it, it, as a part of cancel culture? Um, I, I I like it seems to me like people just don't want to be held accountable, or they don't want to be called out for their shitty takes on Twitter. Uh, and uh, by virtue of the platform, especially if you, you're a famous person, that's kind of what Twitter's going to be, you know? Like, uh, I like, I don't know about you. I don't know how often you actually check all the replies to a single tweet you have, but uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, half the half the human population probably hates you, right? In any given oh, state, sure. right? All, all the conservatives will hate you, right? Like, all the outriders despise me. They're constantly telling me terrible things. And, and like, that. that's just the virtue of the platform. Um, yes. That doesn't mean that I, I don't want to take information from, especially for someone like JK Rowland, who is getting feedback from her peers, right? From, from people... She she worked with like uh what is it daniel radcliffe right just came out and, and just did the most beautiful elegant little like you know you could just hear it as it is delightfully whimsical voice you know just, just coming out <laughs> and, and and made this whole post that was that was just so lovely to see that was just like i i'm sorry uh that she's she's doing this but at the same time if you as a child uh took anything from these please don't ever let that leave your heart uh, i hope it, it meant to you as much as it meant to us to create it all that kind of stuff but at the same time trans women are women trans men are men and that's all there is to it right and and that, I yeah. I mean, I mean. Sorry, my, my long-winded answer. Short. That uh, cancel culture is not real.
2: Yeah. No. I, and yeah. that's that's beautifully put because I I totally agree. Like what I see, like the discourse with regard to cancel culture for me can be like reduced down to someone getting backlash over a tweet. So they say, oh well, I'm canceled. Or like if you put up a YouTube video with a bad tag and it gets like majority yeah. dislikes, then you say I've been canceled. But because ha- you're still here. So have you really been canceled though? I mean, yeah. it's just it's not really a, a real thing and in the instances where someone is like legitimately canceled and they lose their career it's really rare and it usually is legitimate like louis ck like i think that that was probably a justified cancel wouldn't most people say you know what i mean so it's it's overblown and i think that really it's it's i don't know it's it's sloppy discourse it's intellectually lazy in my opinion so whenever i see like hysteria about cancel culture i mean you can point to instances of like a viral video leading to someone losing their job and sure you can you can debate whether or not that's something that we want and society but overall what we're really talking about with cancel culture um in terms of like the political discourse is people with large platforms people who are on national mainstream news people with power and money and you're not being canceled if we criticize you they just want to put out shitty takes and not be criticized but i mm-hmm. mean that you're canceling everyone well, else who wants to criticize
0: let's, you let's let's use louis as an example because louis in my opinion wasn't canceled in the same way that these people are saying they're canceled louis was Accused uh, of women of, uh, you know, forcing them to watch them masturbate uh, and locking them in rooms to to perform those acts, and then admitted to it. And, and that was it. it. It wasn't like this long, ongoing process where Louis said, like, the, the thing with all these comedians who are like, you can't even do comedy anymore. Like, I can't even yeah. say what I want to say. I'll be cancelled instantaneously, blah, blah, blah. Sure, you can do comedy. You can do... Ha- have you seen Eric Andre's new special? It's got to be one of the most offensive comedy specials in a long time. And yet, it's it's still not as bad as most of these other comedians' stuff because there's a point, right? Like, what is the punchline? The same thing with, like, the really... the The kind of shitty uh dave Chappelle, one of my favorite comedian probably my favorite comedian actually if, if i yeah, uh, if same. i'm being totally honest um his, his newer special is unfortunately on netflix not not that good. And just because mm-hmm. it really feels like he's punching down, right? He's, he's, you know, he's attacking members of the trans community, stuff like that, and there's not really a point to... The punchline at the end of the day... Uh, sorry, the punchline at the end of the day wasn't, like, something that is uh, actually going to be transformative. That actually makes me really think about uh, a societal issue like he used to do so beautifully. He was sublime at that, right? Um, so, in the case of Louis C.K., uh, he's... Even though he was, quote-unquote, cancelled by, by virtue of, like, he admitted to doing some pretty horrifying things, he still sells on comedy clubs. He still mm-hmm. makes comedy specials. He still, if he wanted to, I'm sure he could have a special on a non-Netflix-esque network. I'm sure he could get on a whole bunch of other TV shows if he really wanted to, right? Like, he hasn't effectively been silenced, you know? Uh, how about someone like Mel Gibson? You know, Mel Gibson ha- has to be one of the most vile racists of our generation in terms of, like, he believes these horrifying things and is vocal about it. It's, it's not like we have to think about whether or not Mel Gibson is a piece of shit. We have it on tape. You know, you know, calling, calling, uh, you know, saying you're going to get violated by a pack of N-words and things like that. Right. I'm trying to keep it as PG. This is definitely not as bad as he put it uh, all the way to being incredibly anti-Semitic. He was nominated for an Academy Award a couple of years ago. You know, like persona non grata, canceled Mel Gibson is nominated for an Academy fucking award. Roman Polanski won an Academy award after <laughs> quote unquote, like, should he not be canceled? Like, he raped a 13 year old. I, th- I think that's pretty canceled. <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know. Like
2: Right? No, I will say the people who are the most like anti cancel culture. They are cancel culture, though. Like I, I can't yeah. remember who, and I'll put it up on the screen. Megan Kelly was railing against cancel culture previously, but all of a sudden she's tweeting at Nike and Disney because they just penned a deal with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, <laughs> what is the goal of tagging them? You know, trying to get him fired, obviously. So it's like cancel culture is a weapon that's being used disproportionately against the left. And like, I think that you can debate the merits of cancel culture. In fact, since we're talking about this, I've got to plug the Submore News segment on this by Cody Johnson. It's like forty minutes, but it's, it's it's perfect um it but i mean cancel culture is being overblown and it's being used as a weapon against the left to demonize the left and it's just fucking bullshit like i'm sorry
0: yeah no i totally agree um who's who's the example i was just thinking of um and now you've got me distracted by cody shoddy i can't I can't stop thinking about it shout his out to cody <laughs> <laughs> he's he's our he's our lefty charlie kelly it's not not the one we deserve but it's the one we need yeah um uh, I don't know. Sorry. I've lost my train of thought. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep talking.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, well, yeah. Um, I will plug since we're talking about Cody Schody, Um oh. Back in 2018, I was on the Creationist Cat Channel with Benjamin Dixon mm-hmm. and Cody Schody. Uh I loved it. So check it out. Um, it was one of my funnest collaborations, aside from this one. Uh, because, you know, I got to be, like, associated with, like comedy and I'm not very funny like I'm kind of like this dry nerd um but they told like the video was awesome so I'll I'll plug that and maybe I'll put a link to it if I could find the video I'm sure it's still around um
0: and and we're plugging creationist cat at the same time yeah creationist cat as well yeah yeah
2: yeah, and Benjamin Dixon also who has a podcast daily I think um that's phenomenal we'll we'll just like go through all the shout outs now no um (laughs) but since we're going through shout outs um let's go ahead and uh let's plug your channel Because my audience has got to subscribe to you. You have two YouTube channels, correct? I
0: do, yeah. So I basically wanted to emulate the Tim Pool uh, strategy, like I told you. So I I stream every day on Twitch. Uh, You can check that out, obviously, at twitch.tv slash thesurfstv. In fact, uh, most of our social media is just at thesurfstv. So if you go to twitter.com slash thesurfstv, uh, Instagram slash thesurfstv, pornhub.com slash thesurfstv, you'll you'll find uh, every every version of that. But then our new channel... <laughs> sorry
2: <laughs> any only fans on uh surf
0: <laughs> or surfs on only fans yeah, Onlyfans? That, yeah that, that that one will be coming up soon <laughs> um but then uh the the other one is uh it's called the surf Times. so it's just youtube.com slash the surf times and it is basically i take my streams that i've done during the course of the day and i'll edit them into little teeny parcels and you know parsecs uh you know i can i can speak nerd too i i love my i love my star wars um, but anyways, I, I would cut that into little pieces, and then I would put that up on uh, the the surf times, and it's astonishing how much that works. Like I'm I'm gonna be totally honest with you, it the, the Tim Pool model works for a reason. It's it's one of the reasons Vosh has grown so fast so quickly. If there is one strategy I would tell the left to start emulating is that, I mean, obviously, um, you know, work on your craft, uh, polish your stuff, make make your stuff as entertaining as possible, uh, you know, cultivate your own voice and then find what works for you and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of trying to aggressively attack the YouTube algorithm and promote leftist stuff, that strategy does work. Like ten minute plus videos into very catchy kind of like uh, headline thumbnails stuff like that, it, it, it is a really good strategy.
2: Yeah, that's good to know because Vosh is, to his credit, he is blowing up on YouTube, which is really nice to see because, like, that type of content before, like, five years ago, that's, like, longer form, um, it wouldn't have a leg to stand on in YouTube. Like, you really uh, were incentivized to make shorter videos. And I'm kind of still in that shorter video mode. Uh, But the longer format videos, especially if people, like... um, Posting clips of live streams it really does have like a ton of views um so that's that's really good to know i I kind of need to shake up my format i haven't had a really big format change but i kind of do a little bit of both here like i'll do some shorter news videos and then i'll do like my deep dives which are like 10 plus minutes um but i kind of make videos for like uh, assuming whether or not i would want to watch them and i i usually aim for like 8 to 12 minutes, I think that's the sweet spot, because, mm-hmm. like, you don't you don't want it to be too short, like, you want to finish your dinner if you're watching YouTube, but you don't want it to be too long, because, you know, they're supposed to be quick. Uh, but I think that really trying to grow is part of the process, so we can take back this algorithm from the alt-right. Um, and that's I'm glad that you brought that up, because that is important for people to know, who are kind of like these up-and-comers who are trying to get, you know, um, their foot in the door, and it's just, it's really tough.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other uh, piece of advice that I would give if, if we're doing this is to uh use solidarity. Because that actually works quite a bit as well on, on YouTube, like combine with other content creators, uh, collaborate as much as possible, promote each other. Um, that's what the right was doing without even thinking about it, because I don't think they were thinking of it as solidarity. They were just thinking of it in terms of marketing principles, right? So your Dave Rubens had Joe Rogan on, your Joe Rogan's had Stefan Molyneux on, your Stefan Molyneux's had Jared Taylor, and then that's how the entire pipeline was created. But their cross-pollinization that they were doing so very frequently does work, right? Mm. Because at the end of the day, it's about finding people. and right now you and me have had this uh, unbelievably, amazingly lovely interaction and the people watching uh, my stream uh, I'd say maybe like a handful of them are going to love you as well, and then a handful of them are just going to be like, "Yeah, that, that was nice," but like, I'm I'm okay. And the same thing, vice versa, right? Some people are going to be watching me and they're going to be like, "Oh, I liked him; he was funny." Other people are going to be like, "Who is this? Like, you know, complete moron on on the show." But there is there is going to be like an overlap and a cross promotion, and I think that that absolutely works. I think it's I think it's uh, it's a good
2: thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm trying to commit to that more as well. Um, it's tough because it's like you only have a finite amount of time and I'm trying to do more candidate interviews, but I think that this cross-pollinization really is the way to go um, because if we want to create that type of uh, pipeline, for lack of a better word, you know, into the left circles, then you (laughs) you do have to do this. Exactly, like you can't just have, you know, the same uh, three people that you watch. You have to be introduced to newer voices. And there's so many great people who are popping up on the left who are just, they have to be promoted. Like it's a shame that they're not getting the attention that they deserve given how much time, effort, and research, you know, they put into these videos. So like, I try to do my part to promote them. And you know, it's it's just kind of like a give and take. So yeah, is there anything else?
0: well, I think my daily streams are I, – I usually get uh, two or three clips lined up every single day. It'll be the Humanist Report. It'll be Rational National. And then some of Michael Brooks and the Majority Report are usually the main the mainstream ones that I put mm. in there. Usually uh, I might add a little Jamie Peck or something else in, in there as well. But that's usually like the, the four or five that I put on there. Um, it would be amazing to see – more voices get promoted as well. like I would love yeah. if there was for example a woman who's as prominent as Sam Cedar is uh, you know I would love to see members of the trans community get anywhere near those kind of numbers right It, it would be awesome if we had way more like uh, diversity and, and promotion and that kind of stuff like that is to, to I guess to, to put a bow on this whole thing the the in poll that Dave Rubin likes to pull uh, is that's the wrong kind. But the right. good kind is is promoting and, and collaborating and working with other other creators of, of a variety of you know d- diversity is a beautiful thing. It, it oh, absolutely!
2: absolutely. Is. Yeah, it, it can't yeah. just be like five white dudes who you get all your left wing news from. Like it has right? it has to be really diverse perspectives. I think that's really important. Like you need a balanced diet um, mm-hmm. of different lefty takes. You know, um, so diversify who you listen to, and yeah, we'll we'll try to help with that for sure. How often do you stream per day? Um, or like is it like a two hour stream? Like how long do you go for usually?
0: I am Monday to Friday, uh, usually about four hours a day, uh, depending on depends on the the load. Uh, if, yeah. if it's a really heavy news day, how much stuff is going down? And then there's a segment that I do every day where I just uh, pick apart ghouls. So mm. I'll, I'll I'll just laugh at prager I'll laugh at Paul Joseph Watson. I'll, I'll you know we'll just line up all these things. We were looking at Alex Jones today, and obviously it's it can be vaccine, it can be taxing. But at the same time, that that to me is something that I, I find that I've, I've become decent at, uh, in, in the sense that I'm, I'm okay at improv comedy when, when I'm looking at the, the, it really helps that their talking points are always the same. Because, yeah. you know, the, the, the research isn't too extensive. So there's times when, and I just talked about it earlier, when I, I really messed this up and I should have done way more diligent research when it came to uh, to Mike Brown and Ferguson. But for the most part, they, they have the same 10 talking points. It's basically the attack helicopter comedy equivalent mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, their, their right wing conservative uh, points. And, and they'll just regurgitate them in different forms
2: yeah <laughs> I was yeah. gonna ask you about that, but that doesn't make sense because like I feel like after I film like if I put a lot of research and like thought into a piece, like by the time i'm I'm towards the end of that like filming, I can't speak like I go like in Trump mode and it's like I'm I'm slurring over my words because it's like so much energy to like try to really <laughs> focus and like get it out there in a really specific way because like you're, we're covering topics that are like really complex. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, if you say, like, just one word incorrect in a sentence, that can, like, change the entire meaning of, like, a particular policy, especially, like, when we're, like, really knee-deep in, like, Medicare for all, you know, for example, um, which I haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, But, yeah, they do make it easier. (laughs) Unfortunately,
0: you won't be able to, it looks like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're
2: never getting it, so, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You gotta laugh or you're gonna cry.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, if there's nothing else that you want to talk about, um, then we can end here, and I would really just encourage everyone to please, please, please subscribe to the surfs everywhere, both channels and on Twitch. Uh, if you're not, then I will ban you and cancel you from watching the humor. Well, that's it. I've got nothing left to talk about. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Lance from the Serfs. Uh, check out their channel. There will be links down below. Um, and usual, we're not going to end the show without thanking all of our Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for helping the show, not just to survive, but thrive as well. Uh, thank you all so much. Uh, I've got nothing else left to say, so I'm going to stop talking. I'll see you all next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is The Humanist Report. Take care.
1: tremendous 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 tremendous